Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Thursday, June 19, 2014, meeting of the Board of Supervisors, Neighborhood Services, and Safety Committee. My name is David Campos. I'm the chair of the committee. We are joined today by committee vice chair, Supervisor Eric Marr, as well as committee member, Supervisor Norman Yee. The clerk of the committee is Derek Evans, and we would like to thank the following members of SFG TV staff who are covering the meeting. Jonathan Gomwalk and Mark Bunch. Uh, Mr. Clerk, do we have any announcements? Yes, thank you, Mr. Chair. Please make sure to silence all cell phones and electronic devices. Completed speaker cards and copies of documents to be included in the file should be submitted to the clerk. Items acted upon today will appear on the July 8, 2014 Board of Supervisors agenda unless otherwise stated. Great, thank you very much. If you can please call item number one. Item number one is a hearing to consider the issuance of Type 42 on-sale beer and wine public premises license to Larry Livingston for the basement located at 222 Hyde Street in District 6. Great. And if we can uh, first hear from the applicant for uh, this uh, liquor license, uh, is it uh, Larry Livingston or uh, yeah, Larry yes. Livingston? Yes, yes. Robert. Go ahead, Mr. Yeah. Livingston. Hey, good morning, Mr. Rogers. Uh, my name is Larry Livingston. I'm here for ABC 42 Type beer and wine licenses. Uh, we'd like to operate a beer and wine bar at the 222 High Street. 222 High Street uh, has been club or bar since 1930s, and it was served as a famous Black Hawk jazz uh, bars, VIP room. Uh, I've reached out to the uh, community meetings and uh, worked with the Tenderloin um, Supervisor Captain and uh, ABC uh, Liaison uh, Officer Duarte for um, several months, and well, I believe that the business will serve the neighborhood in positive ways, and so, yeah, I'm here. Okay, great. Thank you, Mr. Livingston. I know that this is an item that was continued from the last, uh, the February uh, 6th Neighborhood Services and Safety Meeting uh, because there were a number of questions that, that remain unanswered. So with that, why don't I ask uh, Officer Duarte from our San Francisco Police Department to please come up and give us a report on where things are. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Good morning, Supervisors. Um, Officer Al Duarte with the ABC Liaison Unit. Yes, we have uh, been on ongoing discussions with both Mr. Livingston, Supervisor Kim's office, and the ABC regarding this particular um, license. We've uh, been in communication with um, Mr. David Villalobos, who has actually been uh, helping Mr. Livingston in some of the outreach he did not do in the very get-go. We have come to an agreement, and uh, I will be submitting a new amended report to um, the clerk uh, Mr. Derek Evans once I completed it, but I did reach an agreement with Mr. Livingston at the ABC division, uh, or excuse me, the licensing rep at the ABC licensing division of the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control. And we've adjusted the conditions to read very simply as follows in regards to 222 Hyde. Condition number one is the sales, service, and consumption of alcoholic beverages shall be permitted only between the hours of 6 a.m. to 12 a.m., that's midnight, Sunday through Wednesday, 6 a.m. to 2 a.m., Thursday through Saturday. Noise, excuse me, number two, noise shall not be audible beyond the area under the control of the licensee as depicted in this 257 form that was provided to the ABC. Number three, loitering. Loitering is defined as to stand idly about, linger aimlessly without lawful business, is prohibited on the sidewalk or property adjacent to the license premise under the control of the licensee, as depicted on his 257 form provided to ABC prior. Uh, it's very tough for Mr. Livingston, one, because he has a very tough corner to deal with when it comes to loitering. He's got, uh, number two, a parking lot that um, is adjacent to, but he also has some residents living right above. 
And these were three very specific conditions that we didn't want to adjust only to safeguard the community. Uh, Supervisor Kim's office was made aware of the exchanges. Um, without further ado, I invite any comments or questions from the board. Okay, so does that outline all of the changes that, that you're recommending? This is uh, basically we took um, approximately three or four conditions that were set on it previously that are governed by statute anyhow. The Business and Profession Codes does that. Um, uh, he, under the kind of license that he has, the Type 42, there's no one under 21 is to be allowed on the premises sure. anyways. Lighting is governed by statute. Um, some of the other items that were covered in the original conditions are governed by statute. So there was no need to double or duplicate work here. It was these three simple conditions that we really wanted. I know that for Supervisor Kim and her office that the issue of, of uh, surveillance was important. Is that does that remain in the conditions? We, Mr. Livingston understands that uh, without putting it on his license. Um, Mr. Livingston will also be reaching a, uh, uh, the Entertainment Commission since he wants to provide per, uh, place of entertainment. He will need a permit from them and we can further enhance this um, premise on that local permit rather than the state license. Okay, great, thank you. If I, can, if I may ask Mr. Livingston to please come on up again. Just wanna make sure, Mr. Livingston, and, and I wanna thank you again for all the work that you've done since uh, the last time we heard this item. You're, you're okay with all of the conditions that, yes. and the changes that have been outlined by the police department? Yes, sir. Great, thank you very much. You. Uh, colleagues, any questions? for the presenters, okay. Uh, I have uh, one speaker card, uh, but any member of the public who would like to speak on this item, please feel free to come up. Uh, Sam Dennison, and, and just, uh, and anyone who would like to speak. Uh, oh, submitted a card, okay. Randy Shaw. Good morning, um, I'm Sam Dennison with Faithful Fools. We're right next door to 222. Um, and I have lived through the experience of having a, a bar right next door. And we welcome the Livingstons and their business. But I do want to also say a couple of things. One is I am concerned about the 2 a.m. closing Thursday through Saturday night. Um, that is the time of the week when we get a lot of loitering. It is a time of the week when there is a lot of activity and living next door to that building. I live, work there. Um, I do know the kinds of problems that can occur. So one of the things that I would like to do is to say we will be paying attention to those hours between midnight and 2 a.m. and looking to make sure that we've got some kind of control on the loitering. Um, in the past, businesses there have attracted people who are interested in the edgier side of life at that time, and so it's often been a problem. The second thing, too, that I just want to say that we will be paying attention to is the noise issue, because noise certainly does travel throughout the building going up, but also into our building as well. And we want to make sure that um, the Livingston stay in communication with us about the noise issue so that we can at least deal with it on a neighborly basis. Sadly enough, the Livingstons did not reach out to us to talk about this hearing or their um, license, so I'm hoping in the future that they will um, do so. So I just want to say those two things I really support. Let's make sure that we keep control of the loitering, of the noise, and what happens between midnight and 2 a.m. Thank you very much, Mr. Shaw. My apologies. Randy Shaw, Director of the Tenoin Housing Clinic. I should just start by saying on the loitering, uh, I get to work at 7 in the morning, and there's significant loitering and drug dealing in front of uh, that site 
right now, and the vacancy of that site over the last few years has really caused problems. So I was very glad that, that this project is moving forward. I came here today because prior to hearing about this agreement, uh, my understanding was that Captain Chernus, has, who is our, our captain who has carefully investigated this, this operation, thought that for six months it should be till midnight only, uh, and that if it's good performing after that period of time, it extended to 2 a.m. I don't have any personal thoughts. I'm just saying that I thought that was the position of Captain Chernus. It was as of yesterday, and I thought that was also the position of Supervisor Kim's office. So I would just want to maybe you can get some clarity. If Supervisor Kim is cool with, with this new change, it's fine with me, but I just want to make it clear where they are in, in light of this uh, resolution. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, is there any other member of the public who would like to say? Okay, yes, from the police department. Good morning, Supervisors. I'm Officer Torres. Uh, I'm representing Captain Chernus of Tenderloin Police Station. Uh, he, uh, Mr. Shaw is correct in that uh, Captain Chernus' uh, recommendation to our AOU unit, uh, who represents the uh, police department as a whole, has recommended that the uh, license be uh, uh, closing, uh, the services of alcohol be closing at midnight uh, for the first six months. And then thereafter, uh, based on their performance, we can look at it and extend it till uh, 2 a.m. But however, uh, because we have to uh, answer to uh, the uh, chief of police, we, we refer to whatever the AOU unit's recommendation is. Thank you. Before, before we hear from the ALU, is there any other member of the public who has not spoken who would like to speak? Please come on up. And if you don't mind lining up on what is uh, our right, uh, your left, please. Please come on up. Yes. Hi. Um, my name is David Mangan, and um, I'm a recycler. And um, it's one of my primary sources of income. And they're going to close that's the exciting. recycling center. No, that's a different item. That's a different item. That's, that item is coming up. It's not this one. It's not the one we're talking about right now. Oh, You'll okay. have an opportunity to speak about it. Well, when thank it you very up. much. Thank you, sir. Thank you for being here. Hello. My card's here, too. Uh, my name is Michael Nolte. I'm here representing myself. But um, I was at three of the outreach meetings uh, to the community that was done by uh, Mr. Livingston. And... Um, you know, the community was, uh, we kind of were all, I thought we were all on the same page that it was going to be 12 to 12 midnight. And uh, again, this seems like another last minute change uh, out in the hallway before the hearing uh, that uh, everything changes to uh, 2 a.m. So the community was fine with uh, 12 midnight for the first six months because we feel that the uh, owner needs to understand, one, the neighborhood. He, in, the, in the outreach, he didn't seem to understand or get what uh, running a business was going to be like um, in the neighborhood. And uh, he, didn't, he, 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 has to, he has to form alliances with the community to understand what it's all about. And I didn't see that really happening in the various meetings. So um, I think that it's important that um, he uh, understand uh, what it is to be a, a member of the community and uh, work with the community and uh, reach out to the community. And uh, uh, one of the problems we saw was just an example was that his, uh, his uh, bathrooms are not wheelchair accessible. 
Um, and uh, we asked them, well, how is that going to help? Uh, how can it be a neighborhood bar for that reason? Um, uh, we have a large senior and disabled population. So we asked pertinent questions. We asked him about beautification. He didn't quite get what that meant. Uh, he, uh, he just said he will have security, and that doesn't beautify the neighborhood. That just uh, pushes people uh, from one part of the neighborhood to another. So uh, uh, he, he, he has not yet installed any security cameras. Um, so I think he's waiting for these uh, um, permits to be approved. Uh, he, he, when he was doing his outreach, it was only about his liquor license and not the uh, place of entertainment. And I was trying to explain to him that he needed to be talking about both his business plan, and he didn't seem to um, want to be talking about both. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Next speaker, please. Hi, my name is Jeffrey Clay Barkus, and I submitted a letter to you earlier. Basically, the problem that I see is that we just have way too many liquor licenses in the Tenderloin. We've had too many granted there. We've had too many brought there, transferred. Every other, any way they can circumvent the law as far as following what the criteria is for having a bar, they're doing it. And that's what's going on now. Uh, we've got people that are protesting liquor license. We're having them threatened. We're having, I myself have had my locks glued inside my house. I've had PCN requests stuck underneath my door by, by different proponents, not in this particular case, but I'm talking in liquor license in general coming into the area. There's a problem in this neighborhood. That bar has been a problem for some time. I know that occupancy is important. I keep hearing vibrancy. I keep hearing, oh, it's bringing all this foot traffic into the neighborhood. But let me tell you about this upscale clientele that it's bringing into the office. I've got video that I can show you of them down on their knees, throwing up, vomiting, defecating, pissing in our doorways. To me, that isn't a business that this neighborhood really wants. That's not a, neighbor, that's not a business that neighborhoods need. When we spoke to him at the outreach, I've been to three different places that he came for outreach. When I would ask him about those things, he kind of laughed. Well, I can't do anything about the people out on the sidewalk. And I said, well, they're inside your establishment. They're coming in and out of your establishment. Well, I have no control over them. What do you want me to do? Well, that tells me this isn't a person that's very serious about enacting good neighborhood policy. I was under the understanding that they would be closing at midnight until I walked in here today and found out that suddenly, oh, wait a minute, we're at 2 o'clock. Let me tell you about when the music stops, they go outside, people start smoking, and since you've moved smoking outside of bars, people like myself that sleep with oxygen pumped in us, 13 centimeters, we're getting that cigarette smoke pumped right down our throat, and we end up in the hospital. So if you think that's cool, for the people that have lived there, I just don't think it is. Thank I think you. that you really need to take that into consideration. Thank you, sir. Next speaker. Supervisors, Mr. Chair, Terrence Allen with the California Music and Culture Association. I'm not here representing them. I'm here just to talk a little bit about the process. As you know, an ABC liquor license differs from a locally issued permit. A locally issued permit, we can have greater flexibility with regards to modifying conditions and bringing in a licensee for 
application modification. With an ABC license, once that ABC license is granted, the permittee receiving the license is forbidden from requesting a change to any of the conditions, which would include their hours, for one year. And that process by which they would change those conditions is quite involved and lengthy. My recommendation on something like this would be to defer to the local permitting agency, the Entertainment Commission, which would have greater flexibility. And if the community does feel on restricted hours, then that would give greater control and a little more nuanced care to how this permit would be uh, managed as it goes forward. We all know what blight does. I've got a business in the Tenderloin. We all know about the factors in the Tenderloin. It is a delicate balance to figure out which are the right businesses and which ones are going to add and which ones are going to subtract. And that's why I think the local jurisdiction in the Entertainment Commission has that greater nuance in making these decisions for a community than a state licensing agency. And for that reason only, I would suggest that you give them a greater ability within the state license and then look towards the local permit for a more restrictive facility. Thank you. Great. Thank you. Is there any other member of the public who has not spoken who would like to speak on this item? Please come on up. Seeing no one, public comment is closed. I know that at some point, oh, sorry. Uh, I'm sorry, but, uh, okay, come on, come on up. Just, again, is there any other member of the public uh, after this speaker who would like to speak? Okay. Thank you for your courtesy, uh, gentlemen and uh, friends and neighbors. I live in the Tenderloin 10 years near the all-night strip joint on Jones and Turk, and with due respect to uh, the desires to create business, create payroll, create tax base, I encourage you to consider the neighborhood as a whole and next door in that area by the planned bar. There are residences with families and children and babies and even if a bar has a sound barrier, the noise filters into the community and causes noise pollution, sleep deprivation, and consequent health problems, which will be funded ultimately by our city public health. So please consider all the people and the costs and benefits and weigh carefully the long-term costs to the community at large. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. My name is Mary Jessup. Thank you. Seeing no other speakers, uh, public comment is closed. So if we can hear from Officer uh, Duarte, if we can, uh, I guess the question for me is uh, if you can address the issue. I know that we're going to hear from Supervisor Kim's office, but if you can address the issue of the hours. Uh, I have to say that uh, it, it's pretty unusual for uh, a police station to send a representative that is essentially advocating for something that is different from what your department is is uh, uh, advocating or proposing, and uh, you know I do think that 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 tells me that they believe that the captain believes it's important enough that someone should have said what was said. So so that is a concern. Well, first let me clarify. The LLU's position is very simple, is we are here to condition licenses or proposed licenses. Uh, and that 
proposed license def uh, refers to Department of Alcoholic Provision Control. That's the ABC liquor licenses. Mr. Uh, Allen has touched upon a few things. Some of the things that we've heard about have to do a lot with um, hours of operation. That is not sale and service of alcohol. That is a planning issue or conditional use issue, if you may. We've heard about uh, handicap accessibility. Once again, that's not a licensing, alcohol licensing issue. That's a planning issue. We've heard about um, entertainment. Entertainment, we have an entertainment commission for that that we also liaison with. And we've heard about um, a few other things when it comes to planning. We've had this discussion in the past with um, the community that the opinion and the matter is that Captain Chernus is correct. We should have or be able to grant some kind of conditional use license that, or excuse me, permit that would correctly address the issues brought by the, by the community here. And I believe that. The dilemma is that hours of operations aren't controlled by liquor licensing. That is a planning but, dilemma. But this is still a condition that, that you're imposing, right? We have we we establish conditions around hours of operations, so there is no question that we can do that. Uh, there is and there isn't. So the 23800. Then what are we doing here? If we can't establish those conditions, what's the point? Well. Everything that we do here is to recommend conditions to the to the ABC. Whether the ABC adopts them or not, that's so on them. I don't want to get into semantics. The question that I have is this, that you guys are recommending a closing time of 2 a.m. Thursday through Saturday. You have a police uh, a, a, a police officer from the, from the local captain that's basically saying they want the, the hours to be midnight. So that's, you know, it's unusual to have, like I said, to have the ALU saying one thing and then the police captain sending a representative to say something else. I, like I said, I do believe in what Captain Chernus has. His opinion on the matter is very simple. But the Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control only, may only uh, adjust licensing, sales and service of alcohol. Planning, we can liaison with planning and have them issue a permit that says they're only open till midnight. We, we don't have that authority. By that rationale, then there is no reason for you to have any conditions. I just don't think that answers the question. Let me hear from Supervisor uh, Kim's office. Uh, and we have here the amazing Sonny Angulo. Uh, wow, what, and, a, uh, what a warm welcome. With that. Hi, good morning, uh, Supervisors. Uh, you know, we, as has stated in the past at the previous hearing when this applicant did come before, come before you for a PCN, um, are very supportive of not only the community's recommendations, but our station captain in the Tenderloin who's having to deal with calls for service and all of the, the community issues that you hear about all the time. And we, our understanding was that the applicant was aware and was um, okay with closing at midnight, given that he was seeking to demonstrate that he was willing to work with the community and work with SFPD on how to mitigate some of these uh, some of these issues. So, you know, I think from the perspective of the office, we would like to see him stick to that and demonstrate that he can be a good neighbor, that he can be somebody that um, is responsive to the community's concerns. Well, uh, Supervisor Yi. So let me, let me excuse me. Uh, no, no, no. Um, in regards officer. to officer, officer, um, Horty, Um, in regards to the conditions, um, there were conditions that they would close. I think you said Sunday to Wednesday or whatever. Correct. At, at midnight. At midnight, correct. So, so 
Where did that come from? This is just something that the ABC would like. These are the conditions that the ABC would like to impose on the license. This is something I'd like to remind the board that for a PCN, what the ABC requires from the board here is very simple, a recommendation of approval or a recommendation of denial, so that the board can, can decide what to do here. We are only simply recommending one's conditions and what our view is in regards to a license. Um, we don't necessarily agree with, in general, with what the ABC conditioning would be here, but I'd like to remind the board that if we go forward with just recommending a denial that the licensee, as Mr. Allen pointed out, on the state matter has the right to appeal that decision and essentially what could happen and what would happen in the future is that he would get his license without any recommended conditions. And that's basically how the city would lose and how the community would lose. I guess in the past um, we've made amendments to uh, recommendations. So if we were to make amendments, is, it, is, is that uh, would it be withheld? Uh, I would like Uphold, to. Uh, upheld, I mean. Yes, of course. I, I would, I always believe that the the board here should have the final authority in everything that happens in the city because you represent the constituents in the community. Uh, the ALU simply recommends something uh, on the basis of our experience and what happens with the process. Okay. Uh, as we pointed out, this is a state-issued license with very little input from the community and more importantly, if we want to mitigate issues of hours of operations, there are different avenues to go through, and that would be plan uh, that would be planning and, and place of entertainment permits, the entertainment commission. Can we make the amendment? So let me let me say this: uh, I, I'm very troubled by what we're hearing from the ALU today. Uh, it's it's this idea that uh, that we need to accept what's before us; otherwise, the ABC can go ahead and do something uh, on its own without any conditions. I'm just going to remind the police department that we're going to approve something based on what we think is right for the community. I speak as someone who wants to see something go in here and someone who has a long history of supporting entertainment, but I do believe that we have to take into account the concerns of the community. And the ABC, if they decide to do on their own something that goes against the wishes, then we'll deal with that. And, and, and we'll deal with that at the state level and wherever level we need to deal with it. The question is, what is appropriate? And I, I am convinced, based on everything that I've heard and based on what uh, Sonny Angulo from Supervisor Kim's office has said, that a 12 a.m. Uh, closure is, is appropriate here. And so uh, I am prepared to move that uh, uh, forward. Uh, and uh, the question that I have is to the applicant. Uh, are you comfortable with a 12 a.m. closure uh, and uh, for, six, for six months? And again, you know, that's, we give a lot of deference to the district supervisor and to the community here. And so that's what the district supervisor is comfortable with. So I'm just wondering, Mr. Livingston, what your response is. Well, I mean, I mean, you know, working with other departments and police and neighborhood for last several months. I've been paying for a lease of the business for last eight months. So what I cannot, like, have is continuous. I'd rather get approval or denial. So if that's your recommendation, 
I'll take uh, that recommendation. I, I guess I'm not sure. I mean, I think that the choice here, I'm certainly not prepared to approve this uh, if, if, if it's not a 12 a.m. closure. So would you rather uh, take a denial or would you rather take approval with the uh, 12 a.m.? I'm not rather take approval with the 12 a.m., sir. Okay. Okay. Uh, Supervisor Mar. Yeah, Mr. Livingston, I want you to be successful in your business and listening to the um, the district police captain, um, the supervisor from your district, and a pilot project that allows you to build even better relations with Faithful Fools and the community-based groups that have been here. So I think you really should be listening seriously to what the neighborhood is saying to be a good good neighbor to the um, the area that you're going in. I know you have a great potential to have a great business with the history of Miles Davis and John Coltrane at the Blackhawk and at the, um, what was the other club called, Deuce, the Three Deuces. So it's got a great history, so there's good marketing potential there. Um, and I want you to be successful, but I think you should listen seriously to the stakeholders in the community to be a good partner with them. So I'm going to be supportive of the recommendations of my colleagues. And, and you know, the one thing that I would add is uh, to the credit, I think, of everyone involved is that the 12 a.m. condition is, is being presented with the understanding that depending on how things go, you know, you could actually end up getting the, the 2 a.m. closure. But I think that that's, that presents you uh, with an opportunity to work with this community, and, and uh, I think that that makes sense. So if we can have a motion to accept the recommendations with the closure time being changed to 12 a.m., so we have a motion by Supervisor mm -hmm. Yee, if we can take that motion without objection, without objection. Thank you. If we can call item number two. Item number two is a hearing to consider the issuance of a Type 42 on-sale beer and wine public premises license. Excuse me. Uh, to consider the transfer of a Type 21 off-sale general license from 424 Hayes Street to 559 Hayes Street in District 5 to Remy's Youssef for Nebulous Naturals, Inc. Great. Thank you very much. If we can uh, actually now hear from the applicant uh, for this license. Go ahead, sir. How are you? You can introduce yes. yourself. Yes, hi. My name is Ramaz Youssef, and I am the owner of Nabila's Naturals in Hayes Valley. I have been open for If you can speak into the mic so that we can hear oh, you. Yes, there sir. you go. Thank you. Much you better. I've been open for a business and serving my neighborhood and the community in Hayes Valley for the past 18 years. Um, as uh, m m the neighborhood continues to grow, you can speak into the mic. Can you lower the mic? As the neighborhood continues to grow, and my customers continue to re request for a variety of spirits, I saw an opportunity to upgrade my uh, license from Type 20 to Type 21. When I found out that uh, Anna's Market is imminent closing down the street from me, I decided to try and purchase the license and have it transferred over to my location. So I went ahead and applied for it. I currently sell some conventional products and some variety of vintage organic beer and wine. Uh, and I would like to continue in the same tradition by offering some of the same eclectic specialty items and spirits to my customer base in the greater Hayes Valley. Thank you. Thank you very much. Colleagues, do we have any questions for the applicant? Okay, why don't we hear now from uh, Officer Duarte. Thanks. Thank you, sir. Thank you. 
Good morning again. Um, Officer Aldort with the ABC Liaison Unit. Mr. Ramiz Youssef has filed an application with the California Department of Alcoholic Beverage Control seeking a Type 21, which would be an off-sale general package store license for his location at 559 Hay Street. Mr. Youssef has been operating at this location with a Type 20, what would be a beer and wine license. So as you understand, it's not necessarily a transfer or a new license coming in. It's just, a it's just enhancing his current license. Um, in regards to the location itself, the city has a deemed approved ordinance that governs liquor stores, and it's very protective of the community when it comes to having performance standards on top of what the statutes are in regards to ABC. We don't see a problem with this transfer, and we do go ahead and recommend that you approve it. Okay. Thank you very much, officer. Thank Colleagues, you. any questions for the officer? Uh, I don't see any speaker cards, but if there's any member of the public who would like to speak on this item, please come on up. Good morning, Supervisor David Campbell, Sir Emma, and uh, Norman Yee. I would say I just released from the county jail, Terminal 1, this early morning. I'm just kidding. Uh, just to say, uh, I'm have a temperament and the self-colouration of the not yet you know, while waiting. Almost like, uh, you know. Uh, I just, just try to say something in the other side of the, the chamber, but I didn't have a chance to speak it out. So I uh, switch to this side to say, uh, uh, I just realized that law of capital economics was something be the external, external application of the holy mercy into the applied way in society. I could make a lot of it, just enough. Thank you very much. Any other member of the public who would like to speak? Seeing none, public comment is closed. Colleagues, we have an item before us. Get a motion. So, so I'll move the recommendations of the ALU. So we have a motion to approve this item, move this item forward. Can we take that without objection? Without objection. Thank you. Congratulations. If you can please call the next item. Item three is a hearing to assess the issues posed by closing the closing of San Francisco's community recycling centers and to discuss what the city's collective strategy should be in light of these closures. Mr. Clerk, if you can please make an announcement about the overflow room. Yes, uh, there is an overflow room in the North Light Court, which is on the first floor. So if you are standing, please make your way to the North Light Court. Thank you. Great. Thank you. So the next item is an item that has been introduced by Supervisor Marr. We want to thank you, Supervisor Marr, for raising this important issue and bringing it forward. So the floor is yours. Thank you, Chair Campos. I'm here with a coalition of community recyclers, environmental advocates, and uh, residents from communities all over the city that are seriously concerned about a, another crisis facing our neighborhoods, the elimination of community recycling centers. It's part of the overall displacement and eviction crisis that the city is now facing, but it also threatens our city's aggressive zero waste policies. We're hoping to achieve zero waste by 2020, but with the recent um, evictions of, of neighborhood recycling centers, it really threatens our efforts for much stronger environmental policies that we have set for ourselves. Recycling centers, as many of the community residents have said this morning on the steps of City Hall, are an important part of our city's recycling system and are necessary for us to maintain as the city pushes towards our goal of zero waste by 2020. They're the only way that thousands of San Franciscans um, can get their California redemption value back. So really it's an it's a economic justice issue for many people in our neighborhoods as well. Historically, the most accessible recycling centers have been located in Safeway parking lots. 
with the exception of the recently evicted Haight-Ashbury Neighborhood Center Recycling Center. And it was a real tragedy that that eviction happened several years ago. That was located behind the Kizar Stadium in Golden Gate Park. And the eviction of the Hank Recycling Center has led to a wave of recycling center evictions in our city. In 2012, we had up to 21 recycling centers. Today, we're down to seven to nine. And the trend is not looking good. Also, in recent years, seven supermarket recycling centers and reverse vending machines have been evicted. And the end, of, the end state of this trend will be that the remaining few recycling centers will never or will be in, only in, concentrated in Districts 10 and District 6. Um, I should announce that, um, or I should say also that a question, how can we as a city meet our zero waste goals if we are allowing this to happen? The Market Street Safeway is scheduled, I believe, to, to be evicted by June 30th. It's closing as part of this trend, and it's the elimination of community recyclers from San Francisco. I just heard this morning that on Friday, the Ocean Beach Safeway on La Playa and Fulton has just closed, and that's without any notice from Safeway as well. Even though I, I received an email from their rep um, a few weeks ago pretty much saying to me that um, the Market Street closure has been agreed upon already, but, um, but she said that Safeway at Ocean Beach has a kiosk, although it's considered a nuisance by some of the neighbors, that they were not planning to close it, and no decision has been made about what would happen after um, they redevelop the Safeway, um, and that they would evaluate the AB 2020 state recycling law after the construction or review the options at that time. So there was absolutely no notice, even though my office had reached out directly to Safeway. So it's a serious issue, and I know that um, we have to get answers from not only um, our Department of the Environment, so I'm really glad that Deborah Rafael is here, but also Guillermo Rodriguez, but also the mayor on what we're going to do about this serious threat to our um, goals of zero waste by 2020. Since the closing of the Haight-Ashbury Neighborhood Center Recycling Center facility last year, five of San Francisco's recycling centers have been closed down. And then that's also, I would say now it's six because of this Ocean Beach Safeway as well. So my office has heard from numerous residents that this is having a severe impact on their lives. It's an economic impact for many people that rely on these um, community recycling centers for a small but consistent income stream that they really need to survive in this city as the rents go up and prices go up in our city. Also, small businesses fear that this will have a horrible impact on them. Um, small convenience store owners may be impacted if the state enforces existing laws that require them to accept recycling or face a $100 per day fine. So we'll hear from some of the, the Office of Small Business um, Regina Dickendrizi and the voices of some small businesses that fear um, this issue. We are also curious how these closures will affect our city's ability, again, to meet our aggressive zero waste goals. In the near future, San Francisco may be left with as few as, I guess now, it's six recycling centers, making it the most underserved city in the state. So let me repeat that. A city that brags about being such an environmental leader, we may be um, the, the least or the, making us the most underserved city in the state. Um, the Coalition to Protect the Recycling Centers has 
uh, created a number of maps that show all the closures. And I think for the press and anyone that's interested, um, it's really a telling sign that many neighborhoods are pushing them out. The city is doing no, nowhere near enough to address this. And they're being pushed mostly to District 6 and 10. And I'm worrying that um, the need across the city is being lost as they're being, quote, unquote, ghettoized in only a specific few neighborhoods in the city. But we need them in every district, in my opinion. And lastly, for these reasons, this hearing is important from our community coalition to our environmental advocates in the neighborhoods to assess these concerns and to develop a collective strategy to address this serious issue. So we have a number of city departments today um, and also others that will be uh, presenting. First, um, and I'm going to read the list and then I'll ask the um, the departments and reps to come up one by one. The first is CalRecycle, Michael Tuck, who's the Associate uh, Programmer Analyst. Then from our Department of the Environment, um, Guillermo, Guillermo Rodriguez, who's the Policy and Communications Director. And I wanted to thank Deborah Raphael for being here, the Director of the Department of the Environment. Also from the San Francisco Police Department, Officer Ivan Sequeira. From our Department of Public Works, um, Dariush Khan, the Superintendent of the Bureau of Street Environmental Services and Urban Forestry, and from Recology, Paul Giusti. And from our Office of Small Business, Regina Dick Andrizi, the Director, and Cecilia Tran from Assemblymember Tom Amiano's office, who's been taking strong leadership with town hall meetings and, um, and developing um, the community coalition as well. And Lastly, um, from our Department of Public Health, Uziel Prado, a, a senior inspector. So with that, I'd like to, if my colleagues don't have any comments, I'd like to ask if um, Michael Tuck from CalRecycle could come forward. And he may be in the overflow room. So maybe as he comes here, we could ask the Department of the Environment to come present first. And Deborah Rafael and Guillermo Rodriguez are here from our Department of the Environment. Is it okay if CalRecycle goes first? I think yes. they'd be great to set the context. Okay. Thank you, Ms. Raphael. Mr. Tucker. So we have Michael Tuck and others from CalRecycle. I'm Kevin Drew with the Department of the Environment. Actually, uh, uh, Jose Ortiz from CalRecycle and George Donker are here. Okay. Uh, not Michael couldn't attend. Okay. Good morning. I'm Jose Ortiz, Deputy Director of the Division of uh, Recycling within CalRecycle. I'm here on behalf of our director, Carol Mortensen, and we're going to make a brief presentation on what the, our program is about. We're about 27 years into the history of the program itself. George, do you want to maybe help with, uh, with the presentation itself? So we'll start with, um, and I guess it flashes on the screen over here, uh, the, pr the program itself was established through um, legislation passed in 1986. It was called the California Beverage Container Recycling and Litter Reduction Act. Um, while it was, the legislation itself was passed in 1986, the program didn't become operational until 1987. 
And then there were three broad goals that were established for the program. Number one was to attain an 80 percent uh, beverage container recycling rate. Number two, and, and we're quoting literally from the act itself because we think it's important uh, that we think the words are important and we think that there's an important message regarding convenience in the words of the act. So make redemption and recycling convenient to consumers by establishing and maintaining a marketplace where it's profitable to establish sufficient recycling centers, and I, I stress recycling centers, to provide consumers with convenient recycling opportunities. And then finally, litter reduction is an outcome of the act itself. And uh, I think that those of us that have been around long enough have witnessed in California that there's been a substantial reduction in litter over time. Streets are cleaner, parks are cleaner, more attractive, and uh, becomes a more valuable public resource. And then in addition to uh, the goals of, um, of the Beverage Container Recycling Litter Reduction Act, CalRecycle must also implement the uh, waste diversion goals of AB 939. So we've got goal after goal after goal that we have to try to abide by. And then with the recent introductions of AB 341, uh, introductions and passage of AB 341 and AB 32, uh, we also realize we need to further uh, adjust our operations. But that's a matter of future changes in law where the program may have additional uh, goals that it, it will be looking at. Now, the California model itself is very significant, and it's something that we need to spend a little bit of time on because it, it, convenience is very important to this other element of the program. Uh, most bottle programs nationwide, they focus on, in, many of them focus on in-store redemption. So you take your bottles back. You may collect some money for taking the containers back in-store. The stores themselves will, will accumulate the materials. And whether they go to um, a landfill or whether they're actually recycled and reused in some way, not something that uh, is is broadly a goal of those programs. If it happens at all, it's because there's a, the circumstances are right for that to occur in a particular community. Uh, the general rate nationwide is less than a 50% recycling rate, so the California program with an 85% current recycling rate demonstrates that it's been very successful in actually getting to uh, uh, recycling goals and also reuse of materials both. Um, the act created, um, well, first of all, the, the way that, that Cal the California model is, is different, it's not a matter of just collecting the nickels and dimes upon sale and then paying that back upon, um, as a refund upon redemption. Uh, it's also a matter of a, a processing fee that beverage manufacturers pay in order to cover whatever the cost of recycling is. Some container types, like aluminum, Aluminum has a very high scrap value, and so there's profit to be made with aluminum containers. People will recycle that on their own. On the other hand, currently with both glass and with plastic, there, the, the scrap value is lower than the cost of recycling. So for us to make it economically attractive to actually recycle those materials, we need to make a payment. We call it a processing payment so that nobody's losing money in that process. And so we're actually helping to avoid further waste in the state, further land, landfill materials, and we're avoiding maybe most importantly greenhouse gas uh, emissions. So important accomplishments of the program, not really thought about 27, 28 years ago, but it's worth noting for the body. Um, in addition to that, the act 
has essentially created an industry in California that didn't exist 27, 28 years ago. Years ago. So the impression that the only re employment that's created is at recycling centers, not true. There are also plastics. We have a plastic market development program. We have glass cleaning operations that exist throughout the state. We've got other investments that we make to make sure that, including grant programs, to make sure that we're actually achieving the goals, thinking about the, the future, making sure that convenience is, is achieved. And um, I, I, I'll point out as well that um, while some communities may think that curbside operations achieve the same goal of collecting the materials and ensuring that they get recycled. The reality within this program statewide is that 90% of the volume is collected through recycling centers or handling fee locations as opposed to the curbside programs themselves. So we need to have a healthy infrastructure of recycling centers in the state if we're going to be able to achieve the continuing 85% well, the 80% goal, but the, the current 85% level of recycling. And then finally, I just point out that um, in terms of of um, the the recycling rate and what we process through curbside operations statewide, that's 8.4. San Francisco has done a very good job with curbside operations, so I don't want to give you the, the the impression that San Francisco hasn't done well by it. They're higher than other communities statewide. But we think from the perspective of the cleanliness of the material and therefore the value of the glass and plastic in particular, we're much better served by having recycling centers in place. So um, Actually, through, the, through Mr. Chair, can I just ask Mr. Ortiz? So even though curbside recycling has expanded, um, can you just explain again just very simply why, why do we still need community recycling centers or why do we need deposits on bottles and cans if, if we have curbside recycling? Two essential answers there. Number one is there's an easy place where consumers can get their nickels and dimes back. It's If we put the recycling centers in the right place in the community, it's a, it's a matter of justice in, in many ways, making sure that people who paid money at the front end get it back. And the other part of that is that uh, recycling centers are very good at sorting and making sure that the materials in the program remain clean. The cleaner and the more that they're sorted, so glass, for example, you've got three basic colors, the clear, the amber, and the green. Clear glass is very valuable. And uh, cullet, which is what the broken glass ultimately becomes, cullet is very valuable to the, the industry in California. We've got about five uh, container glass container manufacturing plants in the state of California. Those five locations can purchase all of the, the used glass or the cullet that we can produce. But it needs to be clean, and ideally it's color sorted, and that creates the highest marketplace value. Yeah, I'll just say the Haight-Ashbury Recycling Center was one of the best operations I'd ever seen, um, tremendously efficient, and it was a tragedy that it was eliminated and evicted from our city. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, and I'll point out, I guess, a further benefit to answer that question. So it's not only the attaining the 80% or more recycling rate that we're looking at, it's all of the environmental benefits that come with that as well. But in this next slide, um, we are demonstrating, thank you, uh, we're demonstrating some of the direct economic benefits to the, the community itself. And so we pay back annually to residents of San Francisco a little bit over $18 million in uh, refund value payments. Um, some people may consider that to be uh, an insignificant amount, but compare that anywhere across the country to a similar size community, that's substantial. 
And that's money that gets recirculated, of course, within the economy. Um, and there's, there's an old UC Berkeley study that speaks to the economic benefit of the program because the legislature asked at a point in time, is this program still valuable? Is it still relevant to achieving our environmental and, and recycling goals? And I think UC Berkeley back in 2002, 2003, their study determined that, yes, there's significant economic value to the program. I believe that's still the case, and even more so in 2014. Um, so in addition to the uh, refund value payments of $18 million, scrap value payments, $4 million, that's largely the value of aluminum. We also pay uh, administrative fees to the recycling centers uh, so that they can continue to report to us. Uh, as to what's going on so that we can determine from a policy perspective whether we need to do, make any adjustments in our operations. Uh, the processing payments that I mentioned to cover the cost of recycling, that's another $2 million that we put into the local economy. And then handling fee payments, $287,000. That's associated with the whole topic of convenience. So if there's a, a retailer or a supermarket that's located in a particular site and they would not, we could not locate a convenience um, a convenient recycling center nearby without additional economic incentive, we offer handling fees. And that was nearly $300,000 in payments in 2013. Um, we also, by law, have $10 million annually on a statewide basis that we apportion out according to a formula. San Francisco received 217000 curbside supplemental 578000 uh, quality incentive payments, that's what we pay in order to clean up glass. Uh, and San Francisco benefited to the tune of $15,000, but maybe those payments needn't be as high as we had if we had more recycling centers that sorted and made sure that the material was as clean as possible. And then finally, we fund the uh, local cores to the tune of about $1.2 million annually to make sure that we continue to encourage recycling as a, as a value for all citizens in the city and the state. So with that, I'm going to ask Mr. Doncor to speak a little bit more in detail about where San Francisco is with convenience zones and with recycling centers and what the trends over time indicate for the future. So, George, if you want, I will handle the computer. Thank you, Jose. My name is George Donko. I work directly for Jose. Um, I've been involved with the recycling program for about 26 years. Currently, I manage the recycling program certification and registration branch. And one of the units within my branch is responsible for convenience zones. And you're going to hear a lot about convenience zones during this presentation. As you can tell from the slide, um, the legislature is clear about cities and counties, everyone working together to make sure that we have convenient recycling opportunities in the state. And like Jose mentioned, San Francisco is doing well with KFSI program, but I believe there's an area where um, the city can do better. Next slide. So when it comes to providing convenience, who's responsible for it? The law requires that beverage manufacturers, distributors, dealers, recyclers, processors, and the Department of Resources Recycling, which is Car Recycle, are the responsible parties. Beverage manufacturers are involved because they have to label the beverage containers with the CRV message. If it doesn't have the CRV message, it's not eligible for the redemption value. Beverage distributors pay the nickel and dimes to the program. 
and dealers are the beverage retailers. We will talk a lot about the beverage retailers today because ultimately they have to sell their beverages and if there's no recycling center, they may be required to redeem, install, or pay $100 a day. Recyclers and processors handle the material that are recycled and the department car recycle. We have a responsibility to continuously assist dealers and recyclers to establish recycling centers within the state and within the convenience zones. Convenience zones, as most of you are aware, are half mile radius around supermarkets. Supermarket is any grocery store that carries full line of um, merchandise, dry goods, fresh meat, um, vegetables, fruits, and groceries over two million a year. So there are several of these. Our job is to assist these dealers um, to establish recycling centers within the convenience zones. And I believe we do a great job because we have a unit that handles convenience zones. They notify the stores when they are required to redeem containers and so forth. So the, the state is doing their job, but I think it is a cooperation of cities, counties, recyclers um, to get this done. Mr. Dunko, can I just ask you a question? How many recycling centers are there in the state of California, and what percentage are located on supermarket parking lots? So we have about 2,700 recycling centers in the state. Um, majority of them are on, um, in convenience zones. Um, There's probably about 1,400 or so of them. So this um, slide gives you an idea of what's happening in San Francisco. And I believe somebody mentioned Hate Ashbury. Um, they existed even before the recycling program came into effect. So they've been a cornerstone of recycling in the state. And as you can tell from this map, San Francisco was doing real well. In 1990, they had more recycling centers than we had convenience zones. Ideally, there should be a recycling center in each convenience zone. It's not always possible. That's why we grant exemptions. We will talk about that also later. But may what happened... You, sorry, may I ask you just a quick question? What's the difference between a recycling center and a convenience zone? Okay, um, so convenience zone is just an area around a supermarket. Recycling center is the actual company that purchases the containers that consumers return. So what happened in the 2000s, probably around 2003, was that um, we had other stores coming in, selling groceries, like the Super Walmarts, um, Trader Joe's, and so those were defined as supermarkets. So you notice that the number of supermarkets which created the convenience, if the number of supermarkets go up, then the number of convenience zones created will go up. Unfortunately, the number of recycling centers did not take that trend. Instead, it came down. And if you take a look, next slide, if you take a look at what's happening in the major cities in the state, um, San Francisco doesn't look good in, in this report. Mr. Donko, can I just go back to that last slide? So it looks like San Francisco probably at its height in 1990 had about, or, or at least that's the highest we can see. In 1990, there were about 35 
recycling, recycling centers and about 28 um, grocery store convenience type convenience zones. zones. So that that's a total of about 35 plus 28, no. 60, 60 no. some odd no. centers. Um, the convenience zones are not recycling centers. It's just an area designated okay. to be to to have to, to have a recycling center, but it doesn't mean they do have a recycling center. So it looks like about 35 recycling centers in 1990. Okay. Correct. Okay. So statewide, what the director of the of car recycling can do is um, give exemptions based on convenience and availability of recycling centers in an area. And so um, the director can give up to 35% of all the convenience zones. She can exempt up to 35%. What we base those exemptions on is, is it convenient for consumers to recycle? Do they have to go far? Um, it's, it's, do they have the volumes to support the recycling? And based on that, we can grant an exemption. Um, if you notice statewide, there's about 31% exempted. San Francisco has 35% exemptions. The key, though, is how many zones are served, how many zones have recycling centers. Statewide, 54% of the zones have recycling centers. San Francisco, it's only 22%. And if you look at unserved zones, which is lack of convenience in some respect, San Francisco has the highest, 41%. So George won't say it, but I will. It would be very difficult for us to grant requests for exemptions in San Francisco. Okay. Thank you. And, and I agree with my boss. Why <laughs> 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 smooth? Um, any questions on that? Um, this, this, the next slide, it's just a breakout. What we are saying is that we do have 3,736 convenience zones statewide with about 54 in San Francisco. And again, um, LA has the highest, but Los Angeles is doing a great job. They have a lot of um, safe zones and they have the lowest number of unsafe zones at 10% compared to all the major cities. These are the top four cities, um, LA, San Diego, San Francisco, and San Jose. Do you, do you, can I have a quick question? Do you sure. keep track of the, uh, in the number of recycling centers per population, you know, per Yes, residence? I've done, we've done that analysis. Um, I can provide that information later on. Um, we've done that before. I would imagine that San Francisco is not doing that well. Yeah, yes, but again, the way the law is um, set up, it's really not based on population, convenience zones, it's just based on the number of supermarkets. Okay. And Mr. Donko, so from that chart of the cities, it looks like San Francisco's percentage of unserved areas is 41%, much, much higher than other cities? Yes. Okay. Yes way higher. I mean, four times higher than Los Angeles. And it looks like about four times 
or three to four times the, the statewide average. Correct. Okay. So this is what's taking place in San Francisco. All the areas that we show in blue are what we call unsafe zones. In other words, there are no recycling centers in these areas. The exempt zones are the ones that are in purple, or is it pink? And the green are the safe zones. A hold zone, we do have only one hold zone, and that's very recent. What happens is that when the recycling center closes, they have a grace period where we determine whether it's going to be unserved or whether another person is going to come in. Um, we see if we can grant an exemption, and I can tell you, based on my boss's comment, that this safe waste store that just closed out for Fulton is not going to get an exemption. It's, so so that, that yellow on the left-hand side on the Ocean yeah. Beach is in my district. Um, yeah. There was no notice at all to our office, even though we reached out to them. Um, what are your suggestions to work with Safeway to, to reverse that decision to make sure it stays open? So um, I think, so Safeway's um, has what we call a grace period because usually when these things happen, we find out do you have any plans to bring another recycling center in? And so we also solicit you know, input from neighbors, community, and say, hey, would you like to see a recycling center here? We look at the recycling center that was at the site where they're doing volumes to support a recycling center. We take testimonies, and based on that, we will say, sorry, um, looks like you could you need a recycling center, therefore you have to have a recycling center, therefore these are your options. Okay. Um, have a recycling center or redeem containers in the store or pay $100 a day. Okay. So from this map, um, I wanted to take a look at the area. I can't see if I can point to it on here or not. Can I? The, see, um, I'm not too familiar with this area, but Pay attention to, if you can read where it says um, San Francisco Community Recycling. Uh, that, our understanding, it's surrounded by pinks. And our understanding is that that site, I guess, is off of Market Street, I believe. So it's Church and Market, or Market and DeBose? Okay. Yes. It's slightly too close. That's our understanding. If that happens, what is going to happen is that in the next slide, you're going to see a lot of browns. That means all those zones that were given exemption are probably going to lose their exemption status because there's no recycling center. So all those zones eventually may become unsaved, which means, again, Convenience is going to be lacking in, in this part of, uh, of the city. And if you notice also on the maps, we've added the um, districts or um, the numbers of the supervisory districts there. And if you notice, District 1 has one recycling center remaining, but 2 has nothing, 3, no recycling center, 5, no recycling center. So. Like my boss said, we will not be granting exemptions. Actually, Mr. Donko, can I just say that <clears throat> for District 1, the, the Safeway store at 7th and Cabrillo 
is a automated, or it's the, um, what do you call them, the reverse vending machine. It used to be a, a full community recycling center, mm -hmm. and um, it's an example of automation, the elimination of human beings that work with people as they recycle mm -hmm. and um, replacing them with machines. But can I just ask you about these reverse vending machines and the impacts of a closure of a recycling center mm -hmm. and the use of those machines? What's the impact on the business and um, if people can go inside the business to um, get a redemption value, could you just explain that? So reverse vending machines, if they accept all the material types, you know, are acceptable, but they can get overwhelmed and there may be oddball size containers that the machines may not be able to accept. It becomes the responsibility of the host store, in this case the Safeway, to accept those containers. If the machines are not operating, the host store is required to redeem containers from um, consumers. So the store is required to allow people to go into the store to Only during the hours where, I mean, the machines are down and they're supposed to be operational and they are not. But if the machines are operational, they are not required to go to the stores because okay. it is a, um, the, um, a recycling center. Okay. Next slide. Okay, this slide um, shows you the impact of um, the Market Street, San Francisco Community Recycling Center closing. If that happens, then San Francisco is going to go from 41% unserved to 57% unserved convenience zones. And I don't believe there's any community in the state that has that number of unserved zones, the size of this city. So the impact is dramatic from 41% to 57% unserved, and it makes us almost five times the state average unserved in our city. Correct. Okay. Next slide. I believe somebody mentioned um, the Hate Ashbury Neighborhood Council, and I think um, in recent years, that's, that's one of the recycling centers that um, closed, and we were all surprised to see that one closed. Um, the impact of that on convenience zones was that there were three convenience zones that became impacted. And not too long after that, next cycle, a marina closed. That had impact on three convenience zones. And then the one next cycle on 14 also closed. And replanet on Webster. So altogether we have 17 convenience zones that had closed within the last year and a half or so. As a result, we have 191 dealers that are impacted and the options that they have, the options that they have is either pay $100 a day or redeem beverage containers in their store. When I first started working for car recycle, I had a job where I had to go to the stores, carry a bag of containers, and ask a cashier or store manager if they redeemed those containers. And one of the most common responses I used to get was, we are not a recycling center. And I don't believe that was the intent of this program, to make dealers recycling centers. But for consumer convenience, that's the requirement. And that's why Jose mentioned that ideally we would like to see recycling centers. If 
San Francisco Community Resilience Center's way to close is going to get worse, like we said. It's going to impact nine convenience zones. And since we've heard that we're not going to grant any of those zones an exemption, additionally, 118 dealers are going to be impacted. So you're looking at close to a little over 300 dealers in the city of San Francisco that will be required to redeem containers or pay $100 a day. This is, this is significant to us. It's very problematic because it's going to be 118, another 118 locations that we, in theory, will be taking enforcement actions upon. We don't know, even if they collected the materials in store, we don't know what happens with that material once it ends up there. Does it end up in the curbside stream or does it end up in landfill? We have absolutely no data. And it's just something that we want to avoid, so we are very much interested in working with you all to make sure that we establish recycling centers where it's, where it's possible. And I think it's great that Regina Dickendrizi from our Office of Small Business is here today to talk about the, imp the negative impacts on those, you said, three, potentially 300 businesses yes. as well. Okay. Yes. yes. So on the last slide um, is our wish list. So ideally, so it's in an ideal world. An ideal, this could happen yeah, if we if we could have recycling centers in all of these zones where we, sh we show yellow um, triangles. Um, that would be great, and that would bring San Francisco to par with um, the other major cities. And something that we will do our best to support and to work with the city and grocers and, and recycling companies, um, local conservation costs, any entities that are willing to help in this endeavor. Can I just say that this is a wonderful vision, and I'm embarrassed as a San Francisco city official that um, in a birthplace of parts of the environmental movement and other things that we're, um, we're doing such a horrible job, it sounds like. So it's a good segue now to talk to our Department of the Environment. But um, are there any questions, colleagues, for are there any questions, colleagues, for Cal Recycle? Yes. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Thank you so much. Thank you for all the information, too. Thank you. On that note. <laughs> it is a great segue, actually. Thank you, Supervisor. And thank you, Supervisor, for uh, holding this hearing, frankly. I think that if this was an easy uh, issue, uh, simple, that we could just pass an ordinance, it would be done. But the fact is that we have this dismal uh, rate of service indicates that, and it's been going on for a long time. You've expressed your frustration to me personally on how long this has been going on, that the solution is not simple, and I've got some ideas. So uh, my name is Debbie Raffel. I am uh, new and old, both new and old, to the Department of the Environment. I am new in the sense that I've been director now for about two and a half weeks. And I think it's very telling that my first time before you is on this issue. So I think this tells about it's about time, and we need to uh, we need to figure out how we move forward. So it's a blessing for me to follow CalRecycle. Uh, they did paint a very uh, dismal picture, but they did it very well. And in fact, they ended with a vision. And what's interesting about that last slide: those numbers of triangles were about 12. So we're not talking about infinite numbers of supermarkets to come to the table here. It's a reasonable number. But what's different about those 12 triangles 
And what we have now is the idea of distribution, that they are spread out across. So what I want to do in the next 10 minutes is fill in some of the picture that CalRecycle started, specifically around California. So just at super high level, so that we're all remembering why we're here and CalRecycle talked about this, AB 2020 uh, understood that in order to maintain and get real recycling, you have to create a marketplace. So what it said was, and it was very much before its time, it defines something called CRV. And the R in CRV is not recycling. The R is redemption. They're talking about getting money back, putting money into a system. So that intention of AB 2020 was twofold, to do two things, create a marketplace, because they understood that the marketplace is really what drives behavior change and, and sustainable systems. You don't want government in there. In fact, if you looked at who was responsible, local government wasn't actually on that list. It was the people who made money off of the beverages, as well as state oversight and local business. So that's who they envisioned. So they said we need to create a marketplace, a financial mechanism separate from government, and secondly, and equally as important to the marketplace, was convenience for consumers, that there would be convenience for recycling and redemption. This is fundamentally a producer responsibility model, and I know that those of you uh, who've been following the issue of how do we get to zero waste to get to the zero, we need that producer responsibility. The responsibility is a shared one. It is for the, the source of the money comes from us, the consumer, it also comes from beverage manuf uh, sellers because they profit. And it was very explicit. Who offers the convenience? That second half, supermarkets. It was actually spelled out in the law, in the definition section, supermarkets. They define them based on the volume. And it was always the intention of the authors of this law that those convenience zones are drawn around a nucleus of a supermarket. But they knew they needed a backstop. So they said if the supermarket decided to opt out, because they can opt out, they can pay $100 a day, $36,000 a year, which for a supermarket might not be impossible. They might choose to do that. So the authors understood they needed a backstop. And so the backstop was if the supermarket refused, all the little businesses around would have to rise and take responsibility and take back in store. They understood that that was not a tenable situation, but the expectation was at the time that the supermarkets would step, step up, that they would do their part. They would have a shared responsibility. And in fact, you saw that in San Francisco, and Safeway was a phenomenal example of that. Safeway came up and said, all right, we are here as the primary supermarket in San Francisco. We will have the centers. But now you have to say, well, what's left? So this is my uh, sort of summary slide that talks about what is the current situation in San Francisco? Where are those recycling centers? We had about 33, 35 of them in the heyday. Now we're down to 14, 15. But the picture is even more complicated than the numbers. Where are those recycling centers? Who's doing it? Who's sharing in the responsibility? And what I want you to look at, and everybody who can read that blurry text to see, is that the Oh, there's only two supermarkets that are stepping up right now, Safeway and Foods Co. in the Bayview. Other than that, all, half of our centers are not in supermarkets at all. 
They're in more industrial sites. They're in more things like scrap yards, recology itself. So the picture of those wonderful yellow triangles, which represented supermarkets, it's not about numbers, because we actually have the same number, but it's who's doing it, who's sharing in the responsibility. It's at this point, there's a lot of absentee supermarkets, and that's what my next slide is going to show. All right, so who could be at the table? Who could be working with us today? So now if you can look and I, you see that Safeway, oh yeah, they are the major one. They have 15 supermarkets. We have 54 businesses in San Francisco that are classified as supermarkets by definition of CalRecycle's law. Whole Foods has six, Trader Joe's has five, Smart and Final, Molly Stone's, Foods Co., Fresh and Easy, Lucky's, Andronico's, all of those people could be at the table with us, but they're not yet. They're not. So right now, I have, I have to say, I have a bit of sympathy for Safeway. I don't want them closing down their centers. But when they say, why should we have the entirety of the burden, I have to say they're right. Because the model here was not that Safeway would save the day, but that supermarkets would take responsibility. And we're not seeing that. So what is the impact of that decrease? That impact is way beyond simply our recycling numbers, way beyond a potential loss of, um, of revenue. It affects the people of San Francisco because the people of San Francisco are the ones who that money is coming from. That $18 million that comes to the city, 12 million of that is going to the people who bring their, bottle, who bring their nickels and dimes there. That's a very significant revenue source. And we don't actually know a lot about who uses those. There's a lot of stories about who, who's using the recycling centers, but we haven't actually done the study to say, well, who's coming and what is the need? And that's something we can think about as a city that maybe we need to do. The other impact of the fact that these uh, markets are not stepping up is that we have 650 small businesses that are potentially going to carry the load for these 54 supermarkets. And we don't even need 54, we need 12. So I think we should as a city be able to get that. And Ms. Raphael, I think there's Grocery Outlet has two sites now and potentially more, so I would add them to this. If my list is yeah. not accurate, that would, thank you, and we will take that, thank you. This was something we put together this week and it can be a living document, so thank you for that. And then as you're saying, yeah. um, the need is, about 12 and as according to CalRecycle and yeah. the condition or the agreement to have a community recycling center could be seen as a community benefit as negotiated with a potential store that goes into a neighborhood I'm, I'm just trying to think about how, how do we incentivize them to yeah. come to the table but I know you're coming to your I am coming to that okay. yeah because that's a, that's the big question right how do we get how do we get the folks on this list to come to the table what are the tools we have as a community beyond just Department of the Environment, Board of Supervisors, what can we do? And that's really the important. Because the challenge of meeting the intent of AB 2020 is not the marketplace. The marketplace is there. It's the convenience. And that's the, that's the challenge for all of us in this room. So what is a fair solution? What, is, what does that mean? All right, so here's just, and I, sorry, I, you know, sometimes with PowerPoint, all the, the formatting just goes awry. It looks beautiful on paper. So I apologize for the formatting there. But getting to a solution means that we're going to need to bring all the parties to the table. And if you look at the number of potential parties 
it's, it's quite large. Uh, it's complicated uh, because we don't have the authority as a um, city to pass a law. You do not, you are preempted as a board from mandating that every supermarket be a, a recycling center. You do not have that tool in your toolbox. So because you are preempted from doing anything in terms of laws, we have to think about what else we can do. So the very first thing we can do is bring the parties together that have, should have an interest in, in making this work so that we don't go to a 57% unserved rate, which is deeply embarrassing. So while the city doesn't have the authority, if we get all these people together, so this, the, the private sector, the community groups, the public sector, I think the answer is going to take all of us because we all recognize that because we've concentrated these uh, recycling centers, this marketplace, into a very small subset of the city, we're seeing unintended consequences of deep impacts on neighborhoods. I don't blame the neighborhood that feels like they're carrying the burden for the whole city and therefore they have all the shopping carts, they have all the noise. It's only, we're only going to be addressed that if we disperse and spread out the responsibility. So right now the brunt of it is District 6 um, and, and District 10. 10 as well. Yes. Right? Okay. And so and what you're seeing, and this is what I'm hearing from people, is that for those people who don't live in those districts, they're going to have to take everything on Muni. So they're coming with their bags on Muni. It's not, or they're riding their bicycles or they're taking their shopping carts. So there's lots of human impacts that are way beyond recycling rates here. So the parties have got to come to the table. And so what is the role of the Department of the Environment in this? Because again, we cannot bring legislation to you as an option. But we can serve as the convener. And I frankly think that's a very logical and important place for us. But a convener doesn't have all the answers. By definition, a convener offers a space for people to come with goodwill. So how do we get the supermarkets to come and, and in fairness to them, I have not called a single one. So I haven't asked them to come to the table yet. Uh, I, and so I'm learning from this hearing. I want to hear what I need, the questions I need to ask, and then I'll invite them. And so my ask to you is that you stay engaged with us because we'll work with the mayor's office. That is my responsibility. But again, the mayor's office can't do it alone. So this is really a joint, the solution here is joint. We have to work together. So here's some final thoughts on what does success look like, because I don't think it's unachievable. And this is not a complete list. I, there's lots more things that can come on this. But what do we need in a system that's going to be sustainable, that's going to meet the needs of AB 2020 and going to meet the needs of all the people of San Francisco? Number one, it needs citywide distribution, number one. Number two, we can get creative here. Having a recycling center is not the only answer a, that's open 10 to 5, 7 days a week or 5 days a week. We can make use, we can mix things up. We can have staff centers, we can have vending machines, we can have rotating sites, mobile centers. We can look at rotating hours of operation. And of course, what's not on this list but would be a part is in-store redemption. So I think it's going to take us to say, all right, let's set back, let's reset the clock and start from zero and think about how do we build this from where we are now. And clearly, this last bullet is really important, is that we're going to have to plan for and manage potential community impacts of these locations. It would be naive to think that there will be no potential impact. 
And so we're going to have to work with the police department. We're going to have to work with DPW. We may even have to find some creative funding sources if it's going to be the responsibility of DPW to do something or the police department. We can work with Bevan Dufty. He has talked to me about these outreach case managers that he has made use of. How do we make use of those at recycling centers? I don't know because I don't know. We haven't had that, what I would call that deep dive conversation, that genuine inquiry that will get us to an answer. But we are committed to being that convener with you if you'll come with us on that. So in closing, I just want to thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for convening this. Clearly, this is a difficult issue. Clearly, it's going to require all those lists of people to come together. As a disclaimer here, I am not an expert in this issue. So I have with me, if you ask questions, there's likely I won't know the answers. So I have colleagues here who have a deep history and understanding, and I will probably defer to them if you uh, ask anything that I don't know the answer to. So thank you. And Ms. Raphael, thank you in your first two and a half weeks um, for being so open to community and stakeholder involvement in a solution. I really, really appreciate that. Um, I did want to ask a few questions really quickly. Um, so Marina Safeway um, had a, briefly a reverse vending machine. Do you know why that closed and how that was allowed to happen? And Kevin Drew, my uh, expert on this, will probably be the one to help you understand. And thank you for so many years, Mr. Drew, also on advocating for our communities. Thank you, sure. Um, I'm Kevin Drew with the Department of the Environment. Uh, the Marina Safeway, uh, actually, through the actions of Cal Recycle, when the exemption uh, was lost, I think due to the loss of uh, either the Webster Street Safeway or the California and Hyde Calistore Recycling Center closure, uh, the Marina Safeway was required to, their exemption was lifted. They attempted to use a reverse vending machine for about six months, uh, and they took it out because they did not like uh, the clientele or the, the action that took place at the store with, this, with the machine. Um, I, that's as much as I know. And then I've already exposed my bias of human beings and community recycling centers to be the solution, not automation and vending machines. Could you talk a little bit about the expansion of the vending machines and how that compares to community recycling centers? Yeah, actually, and there's a couple of other people here in the room who have long experience in this who may want to, who I think are going to speak later and they may be able to add a little something. Uh, John Ferrari with uh, Replanet and Next Cycle and uh, Ed Dunn, who's done a lot of research uh, both on reverse vending machines in the past and, and the current iteration of them. Uh, they are, they work in other places. Uh, Europe uses them extensively. The East Coast of the United States uses them. I think it's a matter of uh, coming up with a, a proper plan for them, which really involves staff support. You can't just put a machine out there and expect it to do the work. The staff, either at the supermarket or a supporting recycling uh, operator, has to be there to service them, to be there to see that they're operating properly, and to solve problems when there's a container that doesn't fit. So I think they're part of a, they can be part of a solution, but they're not a replacement for, for people. And they really just create, they should create some additional convenience by being open when maybe there's not a person there, but they really do need to be supported by staff. Uh, and I think, I think there are models out there where we could make good use of them. And then one last question. I'm not even going to ask you about the closure of the Hank Recycling Center, but could you just quantify the, the closure the soon-to-be closure of the uh, Market Street Recycling Center, like how is that going to impact the communities? I know others have talked about that. It's, well, it's uh, that recycling center, the recycling center at Market Street actually was specifically built by, with city funds 
to uh, create a, a, a closed off, uh, nice looking actually recycling center at a very critical spot on Market Street. Uh, that was about 15 years ago, uh, actually more than that, almost 20 years ago now. And that center has just continued to take more and more volume. What it was designed for, it's probably almost tripled the volume that it was designed for at the time that wall was built uh, because centers like the Hank Center and the Webster Street Safeway uh, Center have closed. So you just keep jamming and jamming that um, volume through there. When that center closes, that, that volume will spread. It'll, it'll flow down Market Street. It'll move towards the, you know, towards the Soma District. Uh, actually, the, all there is down there is a reverse vending machine at King Street. That's not going to do it. Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to know where that material is going to go, and that's one of our concerns is that some of that material will, may, may no longer be recycled uh, because it doesn't have a good destination. But as, as uh, Debbie pointed out, there will be huge impacts on the people carrying the material to wherever they go and on public transit, on streets, uh, as people try to navigate to, to find a place to get their redemption money back. Yeah, I wish I could ask you a bunch more questions, but I have a stack of cards and a number of other speakers. But thank you, Mr. Drew. Um, thank you. I should acknowledge that um, we also have... Um, Susan Collins from the Beverage and Container Recycling Institute, a national organization, Teresa Bui, Bui from Californians Against Waste, a Sacramento-based agency that's monitoring the impacts of the state legislation. Ed Dunn from the San Francisco Community Recyclers, Jessica Connolly from Northern California Recyclers Association as well with us. So the next speaker is um, from our um, police department officer, Ivan Sakara. And thank you for everyone's patience, and I'm going to do my best to keep this moving. Morning, supervisors. Morning. Uh, I'll keep it brief. From a, uh, our, our involvement is primarily from a criminal standpoint. Could you please pull the mic closer, officer? Thank you. I'll lean toward it. Uh, we currently have a department bulletin that identifies if we ever see anyone uh, taking recyclables, cans, bottles, out of the blue bins, mm -hmm. enforcement action should be taken. Uh, primarily at this time, it's complaint-driven. Uh, I have, I have a, an anal uh, a, a document from our analysis unit, and it appears that for the Section 293.1 of the Municipal Health Code, We've had 10 incidents in the past year where people have been cited. Uh, this doesn't include any peripheral violations, such as suspended licenses uh, from the people operating the vehicles that are collecting the bottles and cans, uh, possession of stolen property. So in the last six months, we've had four incidents where the 293.1 violation has taken place. Uh, and so far this year, we've had uh, seven. So, as I said, it's primarily complaint-driven, and uh, that's all I have. Thank you so much for being here. No Thank problem. you. Uh, the next speaker is Dariush Kayan from the Department of Public Works. And also we have Paul Giusti from Recology as well. <clears throat> Good morning, Supervisors. Uh, yeah, Paul and I will do a presentation together. I'll start out and then hand it over to Paul. Uh, so my name is Dariush Kahan. I'm a superintendent at DPW, and I'm responsible for street cleaning, trees, graffiti abatement, and landscaping. 
And uh, per the request of your office, Supervisor Marr, I was going to give a, just a quick presentation about how we service the city cams that are throughout our city. Um, we, we have a total of 3,300 trash receptacles on the streets. The majority of those cans are the concrete cans that have a, a metal container on the top, a top uh, that actually covers that can. Some of those tops have a recycling top to them, um, but not all of them. Um, and what we're doing right now is we're actually converting over to these new metal cans. And so those are the round metal cans that you see out there. All of those cans will have recycling tops uh, mm -hmm. on them. And we're doing that at about 400 a year going forward. Um, I also just wanted to present a dashboard. Um, There it goes, yeah. This is the committee members. So I just wanted to walk you through sort of what happens with those cans. Um, we have a business intelligence system. It's part of our DPW stat operations. So we're looking at what's happening throughout our entire operation in real time. And then monthly we get together and sort of look at what happens with the cans. So I wanted to, you know, with all of our data really, but um, specifically I want to drill down on the cans. And um, if you see in the upper left-hand corner, um, the graph illustrates service requests for overflowing cans. So staff are out there servicing these cans regularly and, and dumping them, but we also get calls into 311 from various sources asking us to actually top them off because they're overflowing. And you can see over the past year, um, we averaged 162 service requests per month, a high of 191 and a low of 106, and that's with respect to our 3,300 cans that are on the streets. And then you see there's a comparison there, the average time, this again is in the upper left, the average time to complete those uh, requests, um, and that was 89 minutes. We had a high of 125 and a low of 51. So the, the, the takeaway from this is we, we service these cans at about an average of about an hour we get to the cans and are able to address them. Um, the bottom left shows when the requests come in. Um, compared to the response time. And I, we just did a snapshot of March 15th through June 15th. And you can see how the calls come. It's really an interesting sort of phenomenon. As people hit the streets and see things at 6 a.m., they start to move up. Um, they increase as you go through the day. They peak about lunchtime, and then they start to decrease. And you can also see that other line that's there um, is sort of our response to those. And so we start to get our feet on the ground, we start addressing them, and then as we get into the morning and then into the afternoon and evening, we start to decrease, so there's a peak in the morning. Um, and this last can is really helpful for us because it looks at the overflowing cans and looks at hot spots, and we can really focus on where there's a problem, illegal dumping, that kind of thing. Um, I'll just end with saying that um, we have a very strong partnership with Recology, and it's critical to the uh, Zero Waste by 2020 goal, which you referenced at the beginning of the hearing. Um, in the past, years ago, DPW used to dump uh, our debris at the Cesar Chavez operations yard. And so anything that was in there went right into the pit and was not diverted at all. We now dump at Tunnel Road uh, at, and, another, and other spots that are recology centers so they can actually be a part of the diversion, so we can actually divert some of that debris. Um, and we average 74 tons on a daily basis of dumping at recology, so it's no small uh, task of what's going on there. Um, also, this past fiscal year, we integrated our data system, 3-on-1, and our radio room with Recology. So now as calls come in for overflowing cans or also very important when people are dumping, doing the illegal dumping out there, many of those things used to go right into the pit. Now Recology gets those calls, picks them up, and they can incorporate it into their diversion rate, uh, excuse me, diversion system. So I wanted to ask Paul Juicy to come up and uh, talk a little bit about their system. Thank you. And then we can answer any questions you have. Thank you. Good morning, supervisors. 
Um, so as far as the city can, what Recology does is we have uh, both dedicated routes that pick up city cans along the commercial corridors, uh, sometimes up to three times a day, four times a day. And then the route trucks specific to each area also service those cans in the residential areas uh, at least once a day, sometimes twice at the beginning of their route and the end of their route. Um, Back when the recycling tops on those cans were introduced, at that time I worked with the Department of the Environment and then Deputy Director Nuru from DPW and came up with that a lot of folks were breaking the doors on those cans or getting injured trying to get into the can to get the bottles and cans and CRV value out of those cans, which is great because that way they were getting recycled. So the idea was to put these tops on the cans that would allow people to drop their bottles or cans into the top of the can, and if somebody wanted to come and take those out, it was easy for them to do it without getting hurt, without damaging the property. And then they were designed to have a little trap door underneath, so when the Recology driver came along to collect it, any garbage or trash that was in that top, he could flip the top down, it would drop into the can, and he could dump it uh, pretty efficiently and quickly. So um, uh, that's kind of the history of, of the recycling, uh, or of the uh, corner litter cans. Um, on the DPW operation side, um, uh, Dar is right, they used to have a trailer parked down at the Chavez Street Yard, and everything they collected from their street operations would just basically go into the trailer, and then we would come and haul it to the landfill. Very efficient and quick, but not the greatest thing for recycling. Uh, now, they, we have dedicated a portion of our yard at the Tunnel Beatty Complex for DPW. Uh, we take street sweepings there, and the street sweepings are taken up north and composted, uh, which is great. That's a lot of tonnage every year. Um, the material they collect off of the streets, which could include brush, green waste, cardboard, th that kind of thing, uh, is taken up to our construction and demolition sorting line, and we're averaging about 80% diversion uh, off of that line. So we went from basically zero to 80% uh, or better recycling rate from uh, DPW's operations. Actually, I, I just wanted to thank you for taking me on tours of the recycling facilities at Recology and, and working pretty much hand-in-hand -hand with um, the city departments and then even making adjustments so um, individual recyclers could eas more easily access the recyclables from the um, the new and the existing garbage cans. And to um, Mr. Um, Cayenne, or Superintendent Cayenne, so the metal cans, the new ones with the recycling tops, um, you're implementing them at 400 per year with a goal of having them throughout the city to replace the 3,300 existing garbage cans. Is that right? That's correct. That's okay. the new garbage rate, so we're doing that okay. 400 a year. And thank you for being so clear about what you do together as well. It's really appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Any questions? I just want to note, uh, with respect to uh, uh, what's happening, you know, with uh, recycling, I just want to thank Mr. Giusti, and uh, I think that you guys do an incredible job, and I appreciate the work, actually, that's being done now with public housing, uh, and I, I think that Recology is doing a great job, and I, I know that you're trying to expand that effort, uh, and... Uh, I just want to say, you know, Mr. Giusti is always going out of his way to also connect the dots with, you know, creating job opportunities for folks in the community, especially young people. So I'm very appreciative of that.
Thank you, Supervisor. Thank you. Um, I know we have another major hearing that's coming up as we get through this one, so I'm going to do my best to ask people to do your best to keep the comments short. Um, the next speaker is Regina Dickendrizi, the Director of our Office of Small Business. Good morning. Good morning, Chair Campos, Supervisor Marr, Supervisor Yee. Um, a couple things. Uh, uh, thank you for having the hearing. Um, a couple things I want to just point out is that the definition of a supermarket um, was established in 1986, which is the definition that's sort of cr around what is like a Safeway, and that it's at $2 million. And so um, because of that $2 million market, um, our marker, we are now seeing more of our neighborhood markets now moving into that definition of a supermarket and triggering convenience zones. And for me, this is very important. So I, I was contacted by Roxy Market at uh, Kirkham and Ninth, and they received the letter because now they've created a convenience zone, yet these entities do not have the physical space to be able to do recycling centers. So I think when we're having this conversation and we're having the exploration, while it's easy to think of the Safeways and their, their, their parking lots, we are now having more, we, we are now having more, and over the next couple of years, we'll have more of our neighborhood markets Markets, uh, moving into that definition of a supermarket and triggering a convenience zone. So that's one thing for us to kind of keep in mind in terms of, um, and they do have a responsibility of creating in their letter that they do get from CalRecycle, they do have a responsibility for helping to create a recycling center. So that is then a responsibility that is being put on these smaller entities. and. Um, and I think the, the, or their option is to pay $100 a day, but for those entities, $36,000 a year is not something that's easily affordable to them. The second component is, is that if we don't do anything and we continue to have uh, the reduction of recycling centers, um, then um, as it has been identified, then the fallback is our small, you know, our small neighborhood stores, our corner stores, they'll be required to uh, accept the recyclables. For the, the, the currently there's, I, I think what Cal Recycle identified, that there's about 118 right now that sort of fall within convenient zones that aren't serviced and soon to be the 360, I think that was said, once Safeways close. They're required to post on their store that they do take back recyclables. And I think for our concern uh, is that, one, most of the small businesses do not have the space to be able to uh, facilitate the storage. It's a health and safety issue because many of these are in mixed-use uh, buildings, and so they do not have the ability to be able to uh, dispose of their recyclables, so they will be retaining them longer in their physical space, um, which then has the potential for rodent and insect issues. And our, in talking with our uh, Department of Public Health, that is a concern for them as well. So those are, I think, you know, uh, as um, the new director for the Department of Environment has said, I think that we need to bring everybody to the table. We need to take a look at this. We have, we have a situation that we do need to resolve. And without any action, um, 
our small businesses will then be the default recycling centers, and I don't think that that it works well for any of us. Thank you so much for being here, Ms. Dickendrizzi. Thank you. Uh, the next speaker is Cecilia Tran from Assemblymember Tom Amiano's office. And thank you for hosting the um, town halls earlier this year and your leadership at the state level. Thank you, Supervisors, for convening this hearing. Um, the assembly member has been active on working on this issue since the Hank Recycling Center fight um, and remains invested in finding a solution. The eviction of the recycling centers mirrors the evictions happening in our community. That's pretty clear. Our elders, people with disabilities, single moms, homeless, and poor families rely on recycling to supplement their incomes, many of which are fixed incomes and barely covering the costs of living in San Francisco. We support recycling as a necessary service to keep San Francisco on the cutting edge of being sustainable and green and reaching the goals set by zero waste in 2020. We should be expanding recycling and recycling opportunities rather than evicting, eliminating, and consolidating, as many of you in this room agree. Um, the Safeway eviction on Market Street's uh, San Francisco community recyclers will push out more homeless and poor people from San Francisco's neighborhoods and relegate them to industrial areas and essentially force them out of the city entirely. San Francisco now has 15 recycling centers when there were 21 in 2012. And that's one less recycling center since our state of recycling forum that uh, we co-sponsored in March. Of those 15, nine are neighborhood-based recycling centers and six are located on Safeway parking lots. And Safeway's evicted four recycling centers and reverse vending machines so far this year and plans for more evictions. What we need is corporate responsibility on the part of the supermarkets as well as um, willingness to come to the table in good faith if we're going to create a San Francisco that is for all and not perpetuating the tale of two cities. I think this is a good first start. And um, again, I thank the supervisors for convening this hearing. Thank you, Ms. Tran. The next speaker is Uziel Prado from Department of Public Health. Thank you for being here, Mr. Prado. Sure. Good afternoon, supervisors. Um, I didn't come here with a presentation. I just wanted to let you know what my role is. Um, I'm in the solid waste program in environmental health in the health department, and I have a primary job. And my secondary job is a backup. And we had our LEA, our local enforcement agent, retire a year ago. And so I've been assuming his duties. and. Um, Basically, with this, um, these recycling centers, we basically just go out on complaints and enforce our San Francisco Health Code, Article 11, Section 581 of the Nuisance Code. And that's how we, um, we're involved in all of this. Thank you for being here as a resource. You're welcome. Thank, Thank you. you. Um, we have a number of speakers from the public that um, I have cards for. And I wanted to call up several of them um, first that have been working on this issue with a broad San Francisco coalition. So through the chair, could we open this up for public comment now? M my recommendation is we're going to have to limit the, num the time people can speak so we can get to our next hearing. And uh, Mr. Chairman, um, what is your advice about the lim time limits on speakers? Well, I don't know that, uh, I mean, I think that we are limiting it to two minutes. And uh, I don't know that we can go below that because I think we have to give every, every speaker the same amount of time. So Excellent. Thank you. 
So I'm going to call up several speakers first. Susan Collins um, from Beverage and Container Recycling Institute. Teresa Bui from Californians Against Waste. Um, Ed Dunn from San Francisco Community Recyclers. Jessica Connolly from Northern California Recyclers Association. And Jennifer Friedenbach from the Coalition on Homelessness. It doesn't have to be in that order, but please come forward. And in the overflow room, if your name is called, please come into these chambers to get ready to speak. And I'll start calling a number of names right after the first couple of speakers. Hi, I'm Susan Collins from the Container Recycling Institute. Um, the handout is a report that we did on the state of beverage container recycling nationwide um, that was recently released. We are a 501c3 nonprofit established 23 years ago to study beverage container deposit programs. We are the only um, institute of this type in the world, so we often get information requests and have members from around the world. So um, I can't tell you everything I know about this topic in two minutes, um, but I do want to make myself available. I can answer many of the questions that I heard you ask, asking here today, and indeed, that's what I do every day. Um, so I do want to say that this issue of establishing enough convenience is a problem, of course, that every beverage container deposit program in the world has faced, but it's kind of true also that no one has done it as badly as California. Um, it's, there, there are mechanisms in place that I can share with you about the way that other places have done it. In looking up the statistics on, on California, and I have studied convenience um, in terms of locations where people can redeem um, per capita. The common standard is more like one location per every 2,000. And with some of the numbers that I heard here today, you're looking at, depending on how many centers, and I heard like three or four different numbers, um, you're looking at a, a convenience um, metric of one site per every 40,000 or one site per every 80,000. I mean, it's orders of magnitude worse than what exists everywhere else. Now, was that tone saying my time is up? Um, keep, please keep going. Okay. It's a soft, uh, soft um, ding, and then you have 30 seconds left, and then there's a loud ding that means time's up. Okay. The other thing that I wanted to, to say was that I've looked at your, your statistics from your 2009 streetscapes litter audit. And so that, please continue. Yeah. that data suggests that CRV beverage litter has been reduced by 87% in this city as a result of your law. And you know that you spend $7.5 million a year collecting litter in this city. So I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars are being saved every year by this law, but it can be calculated. And with that, if my time is up, I'll just make myself available as a resource because, again, I can answer most of the questions that you had. So can I just ask one question? In looking nationally at different urban, other urban areas, um, do you have any recommendations on how we maintain or even expand community-based recycling centers? Um, for this particular system, since you don't have a return to retail mandate, for all stores, which is what exists in eight out of the ten states that have a deposit program in the U.S. They just don't have this issue, period, because they have return sites everywhere. Um, but in the places where they use um, a redemption center model or a depot model, the producers, the manufacturers, when I say producers, I mean both beverage manufacturers and the retailers, 
usually form a cooperative, and that cooperative is responsible for maintaining the standards that are set by the provincial authorities or the state authorities or the, the country. So they have, they have to set up, put together a plan of how they're going to establish enough return locations, and then they have to meet that plan or else answer to the provincial authorities. So they basically they figure out how to establish enough sites. And the cooperative model that Ms. Raphael was talking about would do something like that. If, if they're taking their responsibility cooperatively and saying how can we establish these return systems. The closest such model is in Oregon where they have had um, several redemption centers established instead of return to retail and it was the grocery stores in an area that got together within a certain radius and said we're going to put a redemption center here and it's going to serve all these grocery stores. Thank you so much for being here. You're very welcome. Next speaker. Good morning. Um, thank you for hosting this uh, hearing. This is an important discussion. My name is Teresa Bowie. I'm with the environmental nonprofit group Californians Against Waste. We um, supported. We were the um, supported the bottle bill in 1986. Um, unlike traditional bottle bill programs, California's program utilizes existing public, private, and nonprofit recycling infrastructure. As a result, the program complements rather than compete with these programs. The beauty of this program is consumers have several recycling options. They can return containers for recycling and receive their redemption at either a supermarket-based recycling center or any of the privately operated recycling center. Alternatively, they can leave their containers in the curbside recycling program, and that helps to um, offset the cost of providing curbside recycling service. Um, recycling centers at supermarket sites are where many consumers choose to redeem their beverages. A wide range of consumers use, um, choose to redeem their services, such as uh, scout troops, churches, recent immigrants, seniors, families, small businesses, bars, and delis. Um, curbside recycling is and always has been a complementary to CRV. Statewide, only 8% of beverage containers are recycled at the curbside. And what was that percentage of curbside? 8%. Okay. And on any given day in SF, the population doubles in size with tourists and commuters. They do not have access to curbside. In addition, recycling centers generate better quality materials than curbside, especially for glass. Um, closing recycling centers compromises the state's bottle bill program effectiveness. In addition, closing down centers will drive down recycling rates, convenience, and increase um, traffic issues, loitering issues. I just want to support um, Director Rafael's um, proposal to have a stakeholder work, um, you know, um, discussion, and we would welcome the opportunity to uh, work with you. Thank you so much, Ms. Bowie. Um, I'm going to call several other names quickly. Anastasia Yovanopoulos, Joseph Rice, Thomas Ray, Ramiz Youssef, Ed Whiteman, John Ferrari from Replanet. Um, I think I've already called Ed Dunn. Um, Tess Wellborn, Catherine Collins. So next speaker. Yes, hello. I'm Anastasia Yovanopoulos. I'm a senior. I live in Noe Valley. And when Bell Market had recycling. There was one staff person who handled the recycling every single day. When Whole Foods came in, they had a machine 
And I tell you, it was such a headache because it does not have capacity. It has capacity for maybe less than two buckets full of stuff. And it was a, quite a headache, and also parts needed to be replaced, so it just really didn't work. They took it out. They cited that it did not meet ADA requirements. So I started going down to Market Street. The people were very courteous. Eight people are losing their jobs, and um, I don't know where I'm going to go. So hopefully um, you won't use the reverse machines in places because they don't work, and maybe this mobile program may work, but I think any supervisor who does support it, like Supervisor Scott Weiner, is really discriminating against the poor, the homeless, and the disabled. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Hello, my name is Ed Dunn. Uh, I'm the executive director of San Francisco Community Recyclers. We operate the Recycling Center at 2020 Market Street. I was also the executive director of the Hank Recycling Center that's been talked about today as well. Um, I've been working in recycling since the 1970s. Um, I want to remind uh, the board uh, today that this isn't the first time the city's picked up this issue. Um, in fact, the Market Street Recycling Center, the wall that the Department of the Environment referred to earlier, the landscaping and the current form of the Market Street Recycling Center, is actually the result of a resolution that the Board of Supervisors passed in the mid-1990s uh, mid when uh, Safeway was trying to evict its recycling centers at that point. Um, it's great to be talking about how to expand the network, and it's great to be talking about bringing in the other stores um, so that we can get more coverage across the city. But the crisis is happening right now. The Market Street Recycling Center will close in a couple of weeks unless action is taken. But if history, you know, will repeat itself, the Board of Supervisors will pass a resolution like it did in the mid-1990s. It will pass it unanimously, and it will urge Safeway to keep all of its recycling centers open, including the Market Street Recycling Center. This is critical to allow us to have time to get the stakeholder group together and to try to come up with new solutions. Um, and it's also a critical public safety issue. There's going to be 300 pedestrian trips primarily across Market Street now, through south of Market, maybe over to Bayshore or into the industrially zoned parts of town, searching for a place to recycle. And last summer we had a recycler killed when they were taking their recycling on a bicycle. That's going to happen more. I hate to sound alarmist, but it's just obvious it's going to happen. And so I just really urge the, the whole board to take another look at this issue and pass a resolution urging Safeway to keep Market Street open. Thank you, Mr. Dunn. Next speaker, Ms. Friedenbach. Hi, thank you for holding this hearing. Jennifer Friedenbach, Director of the Coalition on Homelessness. So, you know, in San Francisco, I think we can all acknowledge that we love recycling. Uh, what we need to do a little more is spread that love to recyclers. No more love for the recyclers. <laughs> you know, um, we're here uh, speaking at the Coalition on Homelessness because, not because homeless people are the majority of people who are recycling at recycling centers, actually they're the minority. Um, but they're the ones who have been demonized and used as a reason in scapegoating for closing down these different recycling centers. You know, we need to talk a little bit about who's recycling. Every time someone buys a, a beverage, they pay a nickel. Well, if you put that beverage in your curbside container, you don't get that nickel back. 
You know, most tenants don't even pay their own garbage, the landlords do. And so when we look at who's recycling, it's really diverse and represents a whole cross-section of San Francisco. You know, you have elders who are trying to contribute to their household income who recycle. You have children who um, are from families that don't have the economic means to, say, buy a used PlayStation. And so kids will recycle to save up money in order to buy the PlayStation. Um, you have parents recycling. You have, you know, and people from all different socioeconomic levels, um, but a lot of folks who are low income uh, that really rely on the additional income in order to make ends meet. And when we talk about in San Francisco, the affordability crises that folks are facing, this is becoming more and more critical that folks have those means to have additional income. Um, for people who recycle regularly, and that's their only source of income, they're working very, very hard at it. They're working an average of about seven hours a day. They're making very little money. Um, we should be recognizing, respecting, and thanking them. So we're calling for a moratorium on the closing of recycling centers. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you to Jenny and to the Coalition on Homelessness for building this coalition to save the recycling centers. Um, Ms. Walborn. Thank you. Uh, Tess Wellborn, District 5 Action. As we know, recycling centers are a proven and successful way to increase recycling and help the city reach its zero waste goals. One reason that people say we should stop it is that there's a few bad actors. Well, that's a good reason to stop having laws altogether. <laughs> so let's not go there. I do think, though, that there is an immediate crisis. So what can we do right now as well as uh, follow up with the DOE's ideas? Uh, one is fix the, the tops of the city trash cans that are missing their magnets. <laughs> uh, two, the city should be lobbying Sacramento to increase penalties on supermarkets that discontinue recycling centers. Three, the city should be looking at siting recycling centers on city-owned land in underserved areas. Also, look at the opportunity to put recycling centers into community benefit agreements, recycling centers and other recycling opportunities. Thank you. Thank you so much for the great suggestions. Next speaker. Hi, my name is Ed Whiteman. I live on Buchanan Street right across from the recycling center. Uh, I've been there before the recycling center came. In fact, I was at the hearing 20 years ago when this issue first came up. Uh, I just want to support how well they run the center there. There are no problems in terms of people loitering there. There is no drinking there. There is no drugs there. It is an area where people in that area, and there are crews of young people that hang out and know not to go there. Uh, this weekend alone, the new condo on Buchanan Street twice called the police on Saturday and on Sunday to remove people who were drinking on their, their area. They know not to go where the recycling center is. They do a great job of, of making sure that the area is kept clean and keeping people out who would be problems. The other issue I'm going to bring up is if, if the recycling center is closed, you're not going to have people disappear. There are already gypsy recyclers that show up on the street, on Market Street and in the back of the Safeway parking lot. They will increase immensely. They will be there at night. There will be no control over that. There will be no regulation over that. And they will fill that gap. And we will have more problems in the area with the recycling center closed than if you keep it open. I like the idea of, of rotating centers and having it spread out further in the city. But right now, until something is done, I hope there's a moratorium to keep the center open for right now. Thank you. Thank you so much. Next speaker. Hello. 
As a SFCR worker, I want to say that we need our jobs and are unlikely to find other employment, frankly. SFCR and Hank are or were an institution offering a decent second chance to what employment wouldn't have, actually. We are the only centrally located buyback assisting the handicapped. The replacing vending machines do not and are frequently out of service. Also, curbside does not refund return deposits, only scrap value off the garbage bill, I believe. We mean happy customers. There is another way to go. Community and police help us. Let us know who's doing wrong and we won't serve them. Recology help us and make your containers less easy to theft. Give us a breaking mechanism on them so they can't be so easily rolled. Purely from the point of view of 2020 market, urban blight and public nuisance will get worse, not better, if SFCR closes. We really do a lot to clean it up and maintain order. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Sure. Thank you. Next speaker. <clears throat> Good afternoon. Uh, my name is David Mangan. I'm a recycler. I'm unemployable because of my disabilities. And I need this place to stay open. They're close to home. I can't walk but about eight blocks at a time. And, um, and I can't afford it. I'm on a limited income. And... Um, I need the help that they offer, and they do a great job at keeping the place clean, and there's no drinking there, and um, <clears throat> they come out and they pick up the trash around the area, they sweep, they really do an outstanding job for our community, and I'd like to see them stay open, that's all, thank you. Thank you. I'm going to call several other names, um, Miriam Zazunas from the Arab Grocers Association, Ruben Avir, uh, Amanda Smith, Lisa Marie Alatori, um, Gary Morrison, and Ors Cesar. Next speaker. Uh, good morning, supervisors. Well, actually, good afternoon. My name is John Ferrari. I'm the former president of Next Cycle Recycling, um, now with Replanet. Next Cycle and Replanet recently merged, forming the largest, most experienced convenience zone service operation in California with over 700 convenience zone operations. Convenience, as you've heard today, is the hallmark of the beverage container redemption program, whereas every California consumer has the right to receive their deposit returned on CRV-labeled beverage containers. Over the past year, Next Cycle and Replanet were forced to close six of 12 neighborhood convenience recycling sites. On an annualized basis, the impact of those six closures, 108,000 transactions will not occur, and San Franciscans who rely on the 1.8 million that was paid in CRB that is rightfully theirs by law and finds its way back in the SF economy will be impacted. An additional and serious casualty to the six closures is the fact that 14 skilled employees with benefits lost their jobs. We would, be, we would be supported of a moratorium that would cease the closures of recycling centers in San Francisco until a solution through the SFDOE is reached and we are open to work with the Department of Environment. I can answer any questions on the RVM issue later, now, whatever you Can want. I just ask you, so the six closures of, 
um, your centers, what period of time did that occur in, or what years, or how long? Up yeah. until last week when La Playa closed, okay. it's uh, a one-year cycle. And then when did the first of the six close? Our first closure was the, uh, the site on Fulton Street, Lucky Store, and it's been snowballing since then. And again, when did the Fulton Street site close? I think it's I think it's just about this time last year. I, okay, I don't so have about the exact one date. Year. Okay. There's an impact on the existing sites we have, though. Those closures, the La Playa crowd is now over at Noriega, which we are too much business. Okay. Thank you so much, Thank Mr. You. Ferrari. Next speaker. Hello, my name is Thomas Ray. I'm a native San Franciscan. Recycling in San Francisco is heading towards a disaster for low-income people and small store owners in San Francisco. Uh, unfortunately, within a short time, hundreds of small store owners throughout San Francisco will soon be required to redeem beverage containers or face a fine of $100 a day if they do not, which most store owners cannot afford. The suggestion by some city officials that a recycling dispersal system of small stores can work is not realistic and will create many hardship for small store owners. No space to store beverage containers, possible health safety violations, no time to handle the business of recycling and traveling to a recycling center to redeem their containers. And if they do not, uh, and, and also, uh, if they have over 50 containers, they would not even get their full value of what they get out, they paid out, because redeeming would be calculated by weight, not by container. If San Francisco Community Recyclers on Saveways parking lot near Church and Market is closed, over 100 additional small store owners will be required to redeem as well. Redeeming beverage containers at small stores would frustrate both small store owners and recyclers because logis logistically it will not work. Ask any small store owner. Small stores are not recycling centers. I encourage the San Francisco Board of Supervisors to pass a resolution for a moratorium on the, closure, on the closure of any current community recycling centers at large supermarkets. This will give time for city officials, store owners, Cal Recycle, and the community to work out a real solution to this recycling disaster that is unfolding in San Francisco. Thank you so much. Next speaker. I'll call a few more names, David Mangan, um, Lurilla Harris, and Sidney Clemens. Go ahead, sir. Good afternoon, Supervisors. Thank you all for holding this hearing. Uh, my name is Ruben. I am a proud volunteer with the Coalition on Homelessness here in San Francisco. And I wanted to speak specifically regarding the church and market Safeway because it seems like more and more there's stories and information getting out about from the opposition to these recycling centers about how aesthetically unpleasant it is to watch the, some of the recyclers that go there. And as someone who's outreached to that very location numerous times, I wanted to offer a perspective from the other end of the arena because the level of respect achieved between the staff and recyclers there is something that I believe should be recognized. The staff streamlines everything well and they interact with everyone in a fair manner and the recyclers themselves approach the center with their items tidy, organized, and ready to go. And moreover, the recyclers, uh, 
specifically regarding them, I've yet to see them litter the area with waste of any kind, nor have I witnessed any type of behavior that led me to believe that they are a nuisance or a detriment to the community. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. And thank you for everyone's patience for this hearing as well. Loretta Harris, you sure played hell with my lunch plans. <laughs> I live in Bernal, and there's a perfect solution for a large recycling center in the farmer's market on Alamany. It's farmer's market on Saturday, and on Sunday it's the flea market. Monday through Friday, it's not occupied. There's plenty of parking, and there's at least three different buses that serve the area. It's paved. It's not in somebody's next-door neighbor. And if this should be used, I would like you to please not start at 6 in the morning. Saturday and Sunday at 6 in the morning is enough. <laughs> you get a lot of traffic there. A lot of, it's very close to where the freeways cross. It's easy to get to if you're driving. And I want to see it happen. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. And David, it's your call. <laughs> Thank you, supervisors, for holding this conversation. My name is Miriam Zizunis. I'm a board member with the Arab American Grocer Association. Um, and I'm just here to express a couple concerns on behalf of San Francisco's corner stores, delis, and grocers. For ex my family's corner store, for example, pays about $1,400 a month for recycling, $90 a month for compost fees, and we have very limited waste for that, but we need to pay that fee in despite of our waste. Um, that's formally what we do for recycling. Informally, we allow people to come by and collect boxes, cardboard boxes, bottles, and food from our store. Um, and as a director of the Office of Small Business, um, Ms. Uh, Dick and Juzy mentioned, these buybacks and forcing them on the backs of grocers also bring up an issue of capacity there's no space. We just don't have the space for it. And in addition, there's serious health hazards in um, expecting us to kind of hoard the bottles. Uh, and one more thing that I don't know if it's been brought up yet, but kind of observation from our neighborhood in the South of Market District is um, in the increased deregulation on the city's behalf, there's trucks that go around and uh, they exchange bottles for drugs, and so that's an additional community health and safety hazard that we've noticed in our neighborhood with increased deregulation of nearby collecting um, locations for bottles. Again, thank you for holding this conversation, and that's all I have to say. And thank you also for the leadership on the Arab American Grocers Association as well. Next speaker. 
Hi, Supervisors. Thanks again for this important conversation and for taking up this hot topic. Um, I, as many people have pointed out, this topic has many layers, from the sustainability of our city, literally, um, from an environmental perspective, to the human impact that this um, critical economic lifeline will have for many of our low-income and fixed-income residents in San Francisco who rely on the hard work of recycling to uh, make ends meet every month. Um, and really what's an interesting opportunity with this topic and why the Coalition on Homelessness has taken it up is because it really does create an opportunity for us to talk about what is our collective value as a city, where are we putting our um, political resources specifically, are we willing to tell luxury condo owners that recycling is more important actually than their property value, are we willing to ask um, corporations like Safeway and Whole Foods and Trader Joe's to have some civic responsibility for the city that they are making millions of dollars off of every year. Um, so while recycling doesn't necessarily impact only homeless people, we at the Coalition on Homelessness feel really strongly that this is an opportunity for us to turn the tide for how we are flexing our political muscle in the city. And the last thing I want to say is that this issue is an international issue. Every major country has a entire class of people who are garbage pickers and recyclers and often there are things like um, recycling unions that exist in other countries and there are organized days of celebration for um, recyclers in other countries. In our country we are responding by limiting resources, forcing it to go underground um, and relegating it to our industrial neighborhoods. So I really appreciate again that the topic is being taken up and I'm really hopeful that the results will be a turn of the tides for our city. Thank you. Thank you. Next speaker. Hello, I'm Gary Morrison, um, and I'm here to just resonate with some of the previous speakers. But the message I like to bring is of high importance. People that recycle are not criminals. She does not look dangerous to me, that lady. So um, with that being said, they shouldn't also have to travel large distances to recycle. Um, recyclers, on the other hand, we are an endangered species. We need to be protected. Um, I ask all of you to resonate a message to protect the people that need to recycle and us, the, the people that are trying to conduct business, um, and try to cut through the red tape and allowing us to open centers instead of continually closing them. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Next speaker. I'm Sydney Clemens, and I want to speak on the next issue. Would you recycle my card, please? Mm -hmm. Okay. I'm Philip Mastercola, and I'm here to um, learn. And I appreciate you having this session today, because I learned a lot. And I don't know about the three of you guys, but uh, I was uh, shocked to hear the studies from uh, Ms. Bowie and I appreciate the State uh, uh, Department being here to talk about the issue of these curbside recycling. Uh, the mayor's office has told me that we don't need recycle centers anymore because San Francisco has the highest curbside record, something like 89 percent, and it's the highest in the state. But what we heard today is curbside doesn't do the job. 8% is what Teresa right. Bowie said. This gentleman said 10%. Those, those reconcile pretty closely. So this is a myth that this administration has put out there. 
And I'm glad it's been busted today. And the idea that the closing of the Market Street Center is going to raise the unserved areas from 41% to 57% has created an urgency. And the urgency is this. In my humble opinion, it is a health and safety urgency in this city. Ed Dunn said somebody's already been killed. We hear from uh, this, this lady from the Arab American Association saying that there's crime because of drugs being traded. People can't get the recycling center, so they sell it to the gypsy fleets. It's a crime issue. It's a health issue. People are going to end up dead or in the hospital. I would respectfully ask you, three of you, to call the CEO of Safeway. Or you call the, this, the mayor's office. Have him call the CEO of Safeway and say, let's put a reprieve on the closure of Market Street Center for one year until this fine association of people today can solve this problem. Thank you very much. Thank you. Next speaker. Hello, my name is Scott Nelson. I'm a recycling advocate, and I just wanted to speak on the uh, impact on the small businesses. Um, Scott Weiner says he supports a dispersed model of recycling for the future, but we actually already have that right now. Uh, with the closing of the um, uh, recycling center so far, there are 222 small businesses that have been impacted. CalRecycle has required them all to um, uh, offer in-store redemption. If uh, San Francisco Community Recyclers closes, there will be 340 small businesses in San Francisco will be required to redeem right now. And, and as it turns out right now, CalRecycle has required 104 stores to redeem in-store. They've all filed affidavits with the state of California saying that they're uh, redeeming in-store. So anyone can now go to these 104 stores and, make, and, and uh, recycle there. I don't think that's what the city wants to happen. I don't think the city wants 340 uh, recycling centers. I think the city should instead allow San Francisco community recyclers to stay open and also uh, support some of the newer um, recycling centers. Thank you. Thank you. Is there anyone else that would like to speak from the public? Thank you so much, everyone, for the great testimony. Uh, and I'll hand it back over to um, our chairman, David Campos. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Supervisor Marr, for bringing this item forward and to all of the advocates and community members who have spoken here today. Uh, I also want to thank all the city agencies that have presented uh, and welcome to the new head of the Department of the Environment um, and to the state, uh, which I think has uh, really shed a great deal of light on uh, on this issue, and I certainly uh, have learned a lot, and uh, and that's the positive. The the negative is that by learning a lot, we realize uh, how poorly San Francisco is doing on this on this effort. Uh, and I think that what uh, Supervisor Marr has done in, in calling this hearing is that is that he has set the record straight on what needs to be done, and, and, and certainly closing recycling centers, uh, it's uh, the very last thing that you want to do. And uh, I also believe that in terms of uh, equity throughout the city, that all of the 11 districts and neighborhoods that, that comprise the districts uh, should uh, uh, bear the responsibility uh, equally and equitably, and so I think that we need to figure out a a citywide strategy so that there is an equitable distribution uh, of recycling centers 
to meet the mandates of state law, but also because at the end of the day, we have to make it convenient. And, uh, and I do think that the concerns that businesses have also raised, and I appreciate the, the uh, Arab Merchants Association and the leadership that they have provided are also important. So I don't know what the next steps are, Supervisor. I know this is just a hearing request, uh, but my hope is that there will be uh, a course of action that, that's, uh, uh, that comes out of, of this presentation. Thank you, Chair Campos. And I just wanted to thank everyone for coming out and speaking and your patience as well. And our office will follow up definitely with the Department of the Environment. And thanks so much to all the staff that are here um, and your leadership. I wanted to thank personally Ed Dunn and um, Kevin Drew and others that have given us the history of um, how San Francisco should be and should maintain its leadership role as a um, champion of recycling and the environment. And right now, as I said before, it's, it's an embarrassment for our city. So the leadership from our Department of the Environment, but especially from the community that's, that's here that's testified is so critical, including the small businesses as well. I wanted to also say that I think the Coalition on Homelessness and the recyclers that have been here have helped to humanize people that um, play a role with um, the new green jobs and the recycling sector of our economy and how important it is for everyone. And I really thank the Coalition on Homelessness for building a broad coalition to help fight for a more sustainable future and um, green jobs and, um, and also our small businesses as well. Great ideas came out from a lot of the testimony as well. So my office will follow up also with um, a resolution drafted as soon as humanly possible on a moratorium on evictions of recycling centers and a citywide plan to make sure we're gonna turn this around so we can continue to claim to be in a city that believes in a sustainable future for everyone. So thank you so much to the chair and I look forward to meeting um, and convening with everyone to follow up as quickly as possible. Thank you. Great, thank you. Supervisor, would you uh, like to have this uh, item filed or continued? I think file, I okay, move to file. So we item. can have a motion to file, so we'll have a motion to file. Without objection, we'll file this item. Thank you very much. And again, thank you to everyone uh, for your patience and, and uh, about this hearing. Uh, Mr. Clerk, can you call the next item? Item number four is a hearing on the unmet needs of children and youth in San Francisco with currently or previously incarcerated parents and review the policies in place currently to ensure the unique needs of these children are being met. Okay, why don't we take a, we're going to take a five minute recess.
Are we on? Okay, guys. Uh, hello, everyone. I'm going to need everyone's attention, please. We're trying to get uh, the hearing on this very important item started. Uh, as I understand it, there is an overflow room, uh, the, the North Light Court. So uh, for uh, fire safety reasons, we are not able to have people standing in the aisle. So if you do not have a seat, we respectfully ask you to go to the overflow room, uh, and, uh, which is in the North Light Court. Thank you. So with that, this is an item, a very important item that has been called upon uh, by Supervisor Cohen. So uh, I will turn it over to Supervisor Cohen. And again, if I may ask people to please uh, respect the proceedings and if you can quietly leave to the overflow room. Thank you. May I? Okay. Okay, everyone, we're going to get started. As you continue to leave the committee room, please do so quietly so we can continue with this business as we go forward. Today we're here, we're here to talk about uh, an important topic. And um, in the, uh, to be respectful of everyone's time, we're going to have to call a few people out of order. First, I'm going to uh, call up uh, Sheriff Ross Mercurimi to share with us very briefly as um, the impacts from his department of, uh, of having incarcerated children um, and what his department is doing. Next up will be uh, our public defender, Jeff Adachi. So let's just go ahead and get jump in and get started on, um, on uh, our purpose here today. Thank you, Sheriff. Please come up. Thank you so much. Okay. I'm sorry. Did we call the item? We yes. Did, yes. Okay. We did. Sheriff, it's all yours. We yes. called the item. Uh, honorable commissioners, uh, thank you. And thank you, Supervisor Cohen, for this opportunity. My remarks will be brief. I'll compress them as fast as I possibly can. Um, another good activity that's happening today is that we're in between the graduations of our San Francisco Sheriff's Department Five Keys uh, Charter School, our morning graduation for the in-custody population. I just came from and now I'm heading out for our afternoon post-custody community graduation. Um, but it's a wonderful opportunity to be here with you and the other members of the community and agencies that have been working closely on this issue of uh, children of incarcerated parents. Uh, I know you're going to learn a lot today, but I'm hoping what we leave with is an emboldened strategy that is supported by resources from the city government that allows us to laser in on San Francisco stepping up to the plate and looking at what has been the disconnect of the not-too-distant past that had really prevailed for decades of us not looking at the relationships and bonding and unification that's necessary between incarcerated parents and children. In the United States, as we know, is the country that over-incarcerates more than any other country on this planet. 52% of the prison population in the United States consists of parents, mothers and fathers. And while San Francisco's population is lower than that average, it's high enough 
uh, in the high 30s that I think is essential to recognize that if we really want, from a sheriff perspective or from a rehabilitation perspective, if we really want to make our imprint on public safety, then everything that we have to do to stem the tide of repeat offense or recidivism uh, as it relates to helping people that are incarcerated uh, come out uh, and have better integration within community, but better bonding with their families and children starts while they're in custody, if in fact that they're in custody. And we believe this philosophically, our administration starting at birth. We're the first county in the state of California that launched what is known as the Birth Justice Project last year. If in the irregular occasion, and the population is not much, that there is a woman incarcerated in our jail system who's pregnant and is expected to give birth during uh, her incarceration, typically the common rule among all states in this country and in California is that the baby is separated from the birth mother by the third day. And it's often uncertain if the baby will benefit from the breast milk of the birth mother. Well, for us, we want to change that dynamic profoundly, which is why we installed doulas in the women's jail that can help facilitate what is a proper birth system and then a better bonding and unification that also means installing breast uh, milk pumping stations inside the women's jail too so that the baby itself should never be uh, without the benefit of the mother's breast milk. Unless there's some legal or health reason, we've been working very closely with the Department of Public Health and UCSF uh, on what is now the Birth Justice Project. We're hoping other county sheriff's departments understand the value of this for what is a more sizable female population. And as it relates to even just the basics of uh, going and visiting our jail, like in San Bruno, the fog there can be quite, uh, quite challenging. And up until even today, there had been no ability when somebody goes visiting with their children, uh, people who certainly don't like the weather when it's cold, um, there's never been any coverage for people to sit and just be protected from the elements. Well, we're building now a gate and a center, a community visitor center, so that people have the ability to at least be there and be protected from the elements other than in waiting for hours uh, while they're having to cope with our visitation system. This is why I have a larger philosophy about the fact that I think a lot of the visitation it should be downtown San Francisco, not shift everybody else just down to San Bruno as the debate and discussion about the prospect of a future jail. But the importance of this is parenting classes because we want to see a cultural shift be propelled by the city government as all our partners in the criminal justice system are also doing their part on so that it's not just speaking to the people that are incarcerated now that we hope don't repeat their offenses. It's the family and children members of those people incarcerated that we want to be less inclined for whatever reasons to also fall implicated within the criminal justice system. And we've seen those stats before that put us on the edge of the seat that we need to stem that generational sort of revolving door of folks that would go back in the custody system. And it makes me optimistic, you know, that uh, see the good work of adult probation and CPS and the DA's office and public defender, uh, community works and Project What, who you're going to hear from, and everybody else, juvenile probation, that is now focusing on the question of recidivism. So we make it required that parenting classes are both now in our male and our female uh, job areas, I mean, in our jail system. But until my administration, 
We had in San Francisco the lowest visiting hours of the nine barrier county, believe it or not. For all the advances that we're known for, something as basic like visiting, we only had four hours a week for visiting. And that made it virtually impossible for people who did not have the means uh, or the wherewithal to get to San Bruno, because transit is not great, to going to San Bruno for visiting in jail to provide those facilities. So what I've done on overtime is on doubling and tripling visitation hours depending on which facility, and it has not been fluid because I'm using our overtime bank to make it happen. There's one thing I would like to leave this you know, conversation with and hope others pick up the speed, is that on an ad back for money that help us to keep that doubling or tripling of visitation hours, we hope that really happens, uh, especially for the women's jail, especially for San Bruno and downtown CJ4. And we also went to modernize, too. Instead of picking up the phone like it used to be, and I kid you not, it used to be a rotary telephone when you would call and there was no call waiting and somebody would have to call incessantly and they would keep calling for hours on end is what we heard from a Citizens Committee on Visitation to try to get signed up for visitation. Now we've done it electronically and online. And just in the few months that that online visitation known as Renova has been established, uh, we've now over had 7,000 established visits on the Renova online system. So the more that we're able to depart from what I think have been some of the archaic practices uh, in the past into the future now, and then seamlessly work with our colleagues here in community so that we really laser on, on reunification and bonding so that people are prepared when they get out, then from birth to adulthood, that's the commitment of this department. Thank you very much. Great. Thank Appreciate you very it. much. Uh, I think that Supervisor Yi had a question, Sheriff. 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 Sorry. Sorry. I just was. So you can tell I'm making a graduation speech, I, I just, too. Oh, okay. It's really <laughs> quick. Off to the graduation. Really quickly. Um, you stated that there's been sort of an increase of um, people getting online and, and there uh, is. Uh, asking for visitation. Do you know um, what percentage of those that, that got online were um, were related to parents' visitations? No, I don't have that demographic, okay. but I'd like to find out what that okay. is. So it's something that we can try to hone in on. Yeah, that's not, that demography is not readily available, but it should, something we should work on. Okay, thank you. We're happy to answer any other questions. Thank okay. you, thank, thank you, you, you so Interesting enough, Supervisor uh, Yee, that's the purpose of, of this hearing is because there's not a lot of data collection out there. Um, and we need to begin to fill up some of these systematic gaps in services. Um, and this is an incredibly unique and vulnerable population that takes responsibility. Um, for, and we need to take responsibility for ensuring that the children of incarcerated parents are taken care of and are thereby getting the and, and into the cyclical and generational incarceration. But before we go any further, I want to just give a moment and to give thanks to the San Francisco Youth Commission and Project What for working with my office on this very important issue and recognizing the outstanding need to review how a uh, systematic reliance on incarceration has affected a generation of young people and specifically low-income minority individuals. And with that said, I'd like to invite... Oh, well, thank you. With that said, I'd like to invite up our wonderful public defender, our champion, Jeff Adachi. Thank you. Good afternoon, uh, Supervisors. This is an issue that is very near and dear to my heart. I want to thank uh, Supervisor Cohen, the San Francisco Youth Commission, 
uh, and all of you and all the people who are here today uh, to talk about this issue. It's my hope that it goes beyond you know just dialogue and rhetoric and that we actually uh, plot out a course of action in terms of how we can improve the plight uh, of both uh, parents who are incarcerated needless, needlessly and the children and family members that are adversely uh, affected and scarred in many instances for life. When we started uh, looking at this issue, it was about 12 years ago, and I was educated um, through uh, the activists, many of uh, whom were here, Sidney uh, Clemens, uh, Nell Bernstein, and we were brought together by the uh, Zellerbeck uh, Family Fund, and they were interested in improving uh, and looking at you know how this issue could be addressed. And in my office, uh, we started uh, by uh, dedicating a social worker uh, who's here today uh, to work with our clients. We represent 20,000 people a year, many of whom are uh, in custody, 49% of uh, whom are uh, parents. And so we've had a Children of Incarcerated Parents uh, program in our office for the past 10 years. Uh, thanks to the Zellerbach uh, Family Fund, and later we were able to um, institutionalize uh, this position within our office staff. At the time, uh, there was just one uh, other uh, social worker teacher who was at Visitation Valley Middle School, um, and you know today that's grown into a movement. Um, Community Works uh, and Ruth Morgan supported. Uh, that position, and, and now it's going into your organization, Project What? We have a very brief uh, presentation. If we can go to the PowerPoint presentation. Uh, this is a picture of uh, Nicole Harris with uh, uh, two family members of a client. You know, here are the perhaps shocking numbers, so they should shock anybody and everybody. Uh, one out of 28 American children has a parent behind bars. Our country uh, incarcerates more Americans than any other country, including third world countries. Uh, we have over 2.7 million children in this country who go to bed every night because one of their parents uh, is in prison or in jail. In San Francisco, 49% of the jail inmates are parents. Two-thirds of the incarcerated parents have committed a non or are accused of or have committed a nonviolent offense. Sixty percent of the people in jail or in prison are there because of drug offenses. And this is something that uh, should cause everyone concern. African-American children are seven times more likely and Latino children twice as likely as white children to have an incarcerated parent. And that's because of the disproportionate uh, arrest, prosecution, uh, conviction, and sentencing of people of color. Disproportionate um, in terms of the number of people in that population and also the individuals who uh, are, say, drug users. If you look at uh, the statistics, you'll find that uh, an African-American who uh, is charged with a drug offense um, disproportionately 
uh, is going to be arrested, detained, charged, and is actually going to serve more time uh, than uh, their white counterpart. And this is something that is true nationally as well as locally. Uh, visiting a parent in jail uh, can alleviate a child's anguish. Uh, there's even a Sesame Street uh, cartoon uh, uh, and a, a character that was created, you know, to uh, address uh, how uh, a child's incarcerated parent, uh, you know, should be discussed and talked about uh, in the absence of that parent. Um, it's positively associated with reduced recidivism, improved mental health, diminished disciplinary problems, and increased likelihood of family reunification. So these are all the benefits of having uh, positive uh, policies. I have to say in San Francisco, uh, we made some excellent strides uh, working with the police department. There are now protocols and general orders in place uh, which direct police uh, not to, wherever possible, arrest uh, a, a parent when they know that a child is going to be home. Um, and there are a number of other of policies that uh, we've worked on. But those are sort of the low-hanging fruit. Uh, there's a lot more work uh, that, that could be done. At this point, I would like to invite uh, Nicole Harris, who uh, works uh, in our Children of Incarcerated Parents program, um, and she's going to just provide you with a couple of examples. Thanks, Jeff. I'm here today um, as a social worker in the Public Defender's Office Children Incarcerated Parents Program to provide you with some stats um, and to also provide you with uh, some case examples of uh, what some of the needs are for both the parent and child. In 2013, we served 63 families. Uh, as a social worker working with the incarcerated parent, I provided counseling, facilitated or helped advocate for visits within the jails, worked with the child welfare departments to assist in reunification, um, and I also worked very closely with not only in-custody clients but also out-of-custody clients. The typical client demographic is an African-American man between the ages of 23 and 35 with one to two children under five. My first case example is Casey. She is a 43-year-old, formerly homeless woman with mental health issues. She was added to my caseload as a walk-in client. She had no knowledge of resources, had been sleeping outside for weeks, and had an open CPS case out of county. And she also felt a sense of hopelessness. She remained hopeful to reunify with her two children, but felt as though she had no support. Casey was charged with child concealment stemming from an unauthorized outing with one of her children. I worked closely with Casey on linking to various resources within the community. There were a lot of hurdles because she was an out-of-county resident and was not receiving the mental health support necessary. Due to her mental health issues, she was unable to remain in some shelters and parenting classes, which was a requirement of CPS for her. Casey met with me on a weekly basis, remained dedicated to her children, and kept trying. Eventually, she was able to secure a shelter bed and linked to a transitional housing program. In the midst of her efforts, she was threatened with the loss of her children to the system, unable to regularly visit with her children, and her son was beginning to exhibit behavioral problems within school and the community. After a year of attempts to link to resources so that she could reunify with her children, Casey now has stable housing 
in her transitional treatment program, and she's also uh, recently acquired a part-time job. She is now able to also visit regularly with her children, and she continues to hope for reunification. The second case involves an incarcerated father who we will refer to as Raymond. He closely co-parented with his child's mother. Raymond is currently charged with domestic violence towards someone who is not the child's mother. He was denied contact visits due to his charges. Raymond was involved in a violence prevention program within the jail and also adhering to the rules. I reached out to the mother of Raymond's child and was informed that their child was exhibiting behavioral problems at school. I worked with Raymond and his fiance, the child's mother, uh, on advocating for Raymond to receive contact visits at the facility that he's currently at. We advocated to the captain and worked closely with the captain of the facility to have Raymond's denial overturned. Raymond is now allowed to have regular contact visits with his child and he's now able to effectively co-parent working with his child's mother from jail, jail to address the behavioral issues. So the next question is what can we do now in identifying some of the barriers and solutions that we can work toward? You'll hear suggestions here, um, if we can go back to the slide. But <clears throat> what we'd like to offer is that we have to improve and increase access to uh, contact visits within the jail, as uh, Sheriff Merrick Ramey uh, testified to. Uh, we have to reach the judges, and I don't think the courts are here. Often they do not participate in, in these kinds of hearings because uh, they feel that uh, ethical rules prohibit them. Um, and that's a problem because unless we get the courts on board, and certainly uh, some of that change has to come in Sacramento, that we need laws that allow judges to consider uh, the impact on, on families and, and children. And currently that doesn't happen. Uh, it's pretty much irrelevant. They don't think about the impact on a family at all or impact on the children at all. Uh, often judges will uh, keep a person in custody uh, for minor offenses. We had somebody the other day who a judge uh, kept in custody on a $50,000 bail for simple possession uh, without any regard of their circumstances. And again, I, I think that we need to make uh, better decisions in terms of who we uh, feel need, need to be incarcerated and only incarcerate people who really need to be uh, in jail. Um, we have to streamline the process for contact visits. Uh, for example, uh, if you are uh, in uh, administrative segregation, you cannot uh, visit your child. Often people are in administrative segregation uh, for reasons completely unrelated to uh, you know, violence or crimes of violence. Um, home detention should be considered instead of incarceration for nonviolent uh, offenses. I know uh, Rebecca Prozan is here from the District Attorney's Office, and I've spoken to Dis District Attorney Gascon about this issue, and he's also very concerned, so we hope that we can begin working uh, more closely together on these issues as a result of, of this hearing. Uh, working to reduce stigma for families affected by uh, incarceration, I think, you know, is something else that we have to become uh, more aware of in terms of how we function uh, as individual agencies as well as uh, as, as well as together. Uh, I know Karen Roy is here from uh, Child Support, and she's been very supportive 
uh, and has worked very closely uh, with our office on these issues and done workshops. And anytime I've, I've sent uh, a person over there uh, who had issues with child support, uh, it's been addressed. So um, going forward, you know, my, my hope is that we come out with some specific uh, recommendations uh, for the departments to implement. Uh, one, one thing you may hear from every department is, oh, things are going great. Well, obviously that's not the case if, uh, you know, we are still incarcerating uh, people who don't need to be in jail and impacting uh, families in a way uh, that uh, is, is harming children unnecessarily. I, I, do, I did want to point out that uh, earlier this year uh, in uh, April we did a um, uh, our Justice Summit, and we, we had a panel on children of incarcerated parents, and it's available on SFGov TV or YouTube for those who are uh, interested in learning more about the subject. And it, it really is an excellent panel. Um, finally, here is the contact information uh, for Nicole Harris and uh, any members of the public or uh, anyone else uh, who would like to learn more about our programs or need uh, our help in terms of advocacy. You know, we could use, you know, two or three uh, Nicoles, um, as as uh, as you can hear from the sheriff. Uh, there's a great need uh, to have uh, even more support uh, out there. But you'll hear from others that are providing the parenting classes and services. Um, you know, we need to really enhance and expand uh, those resources because you have to take the parenting class in order to um, to uh, have have uh, supervised visits or visits. And uh, currently, there's a waiting list, I think, of 20 uh, to get into the parenting classes. So there's more need there as well. Anyways, I appreciate uh, you listening uh, to uh, my presentation and that of Ms. Harris, and uh, uh, I give my thanks and. Uh, for taking on this issue. Great, thank you very much. Colleagues, do you have any questions for the public defender? No, okay, seeing none, then let's go ahead and move on with our presentation from the Youth Commission and, and Project What? To start off, I would like to thank Supervisor Cohen for sponsoring this hearing and all of you for giving us your attention. You can speak into the mic so we can hear you. Thank you. I'm Denisha Webb. I'm the District 10 representative of the San Francisco Youth Commission. Hi, my name is... Hi, my name is Nicole, and I'm 18 years old, and I'm currently attending City College in San Francisco, and I've been, I'm a youth advocate for Project Wood as of June 2013. Hi, my name is Azizi Lloyd. I'm 17 years old. I recently just graduated from George Washington High School, and I've been a part of Project What since the summer of 2013. Hello, um, my name is Sophie Edelhart. I'm a mayoral appointee to the Youth Commission, and I'm also chair of the Youth Justice Committee this year. The Youth Commission is made up of 17 youth. Our goals include, but are not limited to, identifying the concerns and needs of youth in San Francisco, and providing youth-led recommendations to you all. We've been working closely with a youth-led organization called Project What? Now I'll pass it over to Nicole to talk more about that. Thank you, Denisha, for introducing the Youth Commission. 
And Project West stands for We're Here and Talking 2.7 Million of Children of Incarcerated Parents. And our two main goals is, one, to raise awareness about the impacts of having a parent incarcerated. And secondly, to improve services and policies that can affect us as well. Our purpose today is to assess the scope of the problem and potential places for solutions to help children of incarcerated parents and also to examine these issues and to examine the issues they face through personal testimony and expert testimonies. And now I will pass it over to my colleague, Denisha. Our purpose is also to identify what departments are currently doing to support this population and what they need to better address and implement best practices and identify the concerns and needs of children with incarcerated parents in San Francisco. I will pass it back over to Nicole. Thank you, Denisha. Uh, nationally, there are 2.7 million children who have had a parent incarcerated throughout the United States. And although this number is very big throughout the country, it is uh, parental incarceration is directly affecting youth and San Francisco every year. Mm -hmm. And according to the Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families 2011 Community Needs Assessment, about 17,993 children were estimated to have, a, have had a parent incarcerated either in county jail or in prison as of 2010. Since, since the number does not include children who have had a parent incarcerated at any point in their lives, nor does include transitional age groups, the number might actually be a lot greater in San Francisco. For what has been done, um, a lot has actually been done, and we would like in San Francisco to address this population, and we would like to thank the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for adopting the, the Children of Incarcerated Parents Bill of Rights as a resolution in 2005. This resolution will encourage city departments and agencies to consider the Children of Incarcerated Parents Bill of Rights when decisions are made about us. We would also uh, like to thank the San Francisco Board of Supervisors for, for passing the Fair Chance Ordinance to ban the box on housing and job applications in efforts to end discrimination against formerly incarcerated parents. And this is a very important step in reunifying children with their parents once the parent is released from prison. And we would also like to thank the San Francisco Police Commission for voting in favor of Department Journal Order 7.04, which is a protocol for police officers on how to arrest parents when children are present. And we also would like to acknowledge the San Francisco Police Department for encouraging and implementing this effort. And I will now pass it over to, Dean, to Sophie. Thank you. Um, so while we really appreciate the work of the Board of Supervisors and the Police Department as well as the Police Commission, there are still lots of issues that need to be addressed. So firstly, currently no department or agency collects data on the numbers or experiences of children with incarcerated parents. Secondly, it is often difficult to find support services, whether through counseling or advocacy, that truly addresses the trauma of seeing a parent incarcerated. Third, because of transportation and financial difficulties, as well as strict visiting policies, children often can't maintain a consistent relationship with their parent, thus also harming the family unit as a whole. And lastly, when a parent is released, we see a need for improved reintegration services. Um, so now I'll pass it on to Azizi. Thank you, Sophie. The Youth Commission and Project What both feel passionately about this issue because of its importance to San Francisco's future. 
Having such a large population of children of incarcerated parents in San Francisco is important that we provide them with the necessary resources to make sure the future of San Francisco is stable and thriving. There are studies that show that children of incarcerated parents are six times more likely to become involved in the criminal justice system. Although we know that we can be the exception to this statistic, as I am here today, it is important that the city address these issues to prevent this from happening for thousands of youth in the city with parents incarcerated. Thousands of youth in San Francisco are affected by this issue, yet no one talks about it. The amount of underrepresentation and disregard for this population suffering has led to an extreme deficit in the resources available, which has had detrimental long-term effects. In my own personal experience, being denied these resources has had a drastic impact on my life. When my father was incarcerated at the beginning of middle school, I alienated myself from my peers and I was severely bullied and teased all throughout the first months of his incarceration. Problems mounted at home and suddenly there was a pressure to not become my father. I had an emotional breakdown that led to self-harm and a string of suicide attempts. Eventually, it wasn't until high school that I received the help that I so desperately needed. In high school, I tried other methods of coping, which started with using illegal drugs in sports simultaneously. This didn't go well, as you can imagine, because long story short, I died briefly in the ambulance ride to the hospital. This is the incident that led to me finally receiving the therapy that I needed. I got off the drugs, I've been clean for three years, and I stuck to sports. It, if it took me having a series of life-threatening traumatic incidents to get the help that I so desperately needed, then imagine how many other children are suffering from the lack of resources. The lack of publicity that surrounds this issue that affects such a vast majority of San Francisco's youth just allows our struggle to go unnoticed. However, it is not too late to end this trend and establish the necessary resources. Be a part of the solution. Thank you for your time. I'm going to pass it over to Denisha now. I want to thank my peer, Azizi, for sharing her very personal story. Um, and now I would like to introduce our two expert witnesses, the coordinator of the San Francisco Children of Incarcerated Parents Partnership, Mel Bernstein, and the chief operating officer at the Center for Wellness, for Youth Wellness, Susie Loftus. Thank you, ladies. Thank you for sharing your personal story. Let's go ahead and, Nell, why don't you come on up and uh, make your presentation, and then, Commissioner, you'll follow. Thank you. Um, you know, it strikes me as I listen to these young people that every civil rights movement in this nation that's been successful has been led by those affected. So I'm very moved today and probably more hopeful than I've ever been in the 10 years that I've been working on this issue to see so many young people stepping up and telling you what they need. I, I've been working for more than a decade with the Zellerbach Foundation and a coalition of public agencies and community partners and affected individuals that is so unique that the Justice Department has sent the Urban Institute to study San Francisco's response to these kids. And it's tempting 
to tell you about all the great things that are happening in San Francisco and all the wonderful things that our public agencies are doing. In fact, that was my intention, but when I listened to Azizi, I was reminded that there are many, many children who have never heard of the Bill of Rights, aren't touched by these programs and policies, and are still suffering tremendous unnecessary trauma. So I think the challenge now, now that we have programs established with the police, the jail, probation, the public defender, child welfare, and many more public agencies, is to understand that children of incarcerated parents are not a unique or separate group of kids. We've heard a lot of numbers, but the one that I find the most compelling and disturbing is that one in 10 American kids today has a parent in jail, in prison, on probation, or on parole. So when you think of the number who've been touched in their lives, every classroom, every clinic, every pediatrician's office, every grocery store, there are children of incarcerated parents. So I think we really have to think about bringing all these disparate efforts together and making sure that every school counselor, every police officer, every mental health worker, everybody who comes in contact with children, and especially given the racial disparities that we've heard about with children from our most under-resourced <coughs> neighborhoods, needs to know about these kids, know about their unique needs, and meet them. Because I don't think it's just a civil right. I think the right to family is a human right. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. So just as a housekeeping rule, we actually um, kind of discourage applause in the chamber just so we can keep the program moving. But if you want to express yourself but something that you've heard in a positive way, something that's really been successful is uh, what are these called? Spirit fingers. Thank you. I'm an expert witness. I know that Spirit too. fingers. So when you hear something that you agree with, please put spirit fingers up. And if you hear something that you, d you disagree with, no need to boo or hiss, but you can put a thumbs down. Either way, we're still able to get the message. Thank you. Commissioner, please. Thank you. Uh, thank you, Supervisor Cohen, Chair Campos, Supervisor Yeats. It's such an honor to be here today. Uh, I wear, I'm wearing a couple of hats. Uh, as you all know, I serve on the San Francisco Police Commission. Uh, today I'm here as the Chief Operating Officer of the Center for Youth Wellness, which is a health organization in San Francisco's, San Francisco's Bayview-Hunters Point area, where we focus on uh, treating and addressing what you've heard about today, which is the concept of adverse childhood experiences. So I'm going to share with you the data, what we know, and um, really put some research behind the experience that we've heard um, from the young people from Project What. So first, uh, I talked about what the Center for Youth Wellness is. Essentially, we treat chronic adversity in children as what it is, a, a health threat. And what are adverse childhood experiences? Um, I've got a PowerPoint here. It's pretty powerful. Um, there's 10 categories, uh, physical, emotional, and sexual abuse, uh, physical and emotional neglect, and household dysfunction, of which a number of uh, items are included. You'll see mental illness. You'll see um, mother treated violently, substance abuse, uh, divorce, which is also known as parental abandonment. What I'm here to talk about is incarceration of a relative. This study came from Kaiser San Diego. In 1998, two doctors at Kaiser who actually were having trouble with a failed obesity study were, were trying to figure out what was lying beneath some folks not having good health outcomes. So they did a retrospective analysis of 17,000 patients in Kaiser San Diego. And what's stunning about it is the patients were 70% white, 
and 70% college educated, a Kaiser San Diego population. And they asked them about what had happened to them as children in these categories, one of which was incarceration of not only just a parent, but a relative. 17,000 people gave their medical history, and the findings of that study from 1998 were astonishing. Two-thirds of that population reported at least one adverse childhood experience. Of the things that we talked about, we're talking about serious stuff, abuse, neglect, and household dysfunction. 12.6% reported an ACE score of four or more. And this is, this is the stuff where I'm, I'm gonna say, I, I told the folks from Project What earlier today, to folks who are living this and kids who are dealing with chronic adversity, none of this is gonna be a surprise, but it was a surprise to the medical community, and it's still a surprise to policymakers today. Um, high ACE scores have led to a predictable outcome of 2.2 times as likely to have ischemic heart disease, which is the number one killer in America, 2.4 times as likely to have a stroke, 1.9 times as likely to have cancer, and 1.6 times as likely to have diabetes. So the reality of that key finding was the pervasiveness of chronic adversity in childhood is, is apparent, um, and the impact it has on your outcomes in life um, are stunning. Now, what they didn't know in 1998, but we know now is there's been more research on what the mechanism is in the body that causes this, and it's a concept called toxic stress. You should all um, know we were in Sacramento uh, actually on Tuesday before the health committee testifying on a resolution to bring more awareness to ACEs and toxic stress, and policymakers across California and the United States are starting to understand there's positive stress, which is I'm studying for a test, I'm a little stressed, you know, I'm, but I'm, I'm getting ready for the big game. There's tolerable stress, which can be the death of a loved one, something really bad happening in your life. And then there's toxic stress, and it's extreme frequent or extended activation of the body's stress response. And this is gonna be really key as policymakers in terms of the listening piece to all this testimony is without the buffering presence of a supportive adult. So many people say, hey, you know what, I had, a, I had it hard growing up, I didn't have it easy, but oftentimes when you identify what were the resilience factors, where were the supportive relationships, where was the positive parenting, there was some mentorship, there was some moment where something happened. Without that, we know that kids suffer from toxic stress. Toxic stress essentially is a dysregulation of the body's fight or flight system. I'm just gonna say quickly for everybody, there's a bear there, right? Our body is, is designed to respond to, you run into a bear in the woods and your fight or flight or freeze system gets triggered. But what happens when the bear comes home every day? The body's fight or flight mechanism and, and stress response system is adaptive, but it can become maladaptive. If every day on the bus ride home, you're seeing community violence, if there's not a supportive parent at home, if you're facing challenges that some of the kids that you're gonna hear from today are facing, your body does respond, but unfortunately, there's a point where too much of that becomes chronic and it activates your system that causes not only poor health outcomes long-term, but predictably great difficulty sitting still at school, great difficulty um, in some of the executive functions of the brain because the development of the brain and body is so sensitive to environment in childhood. Now, this all sounds like um, bad news, but don't worry, we're gonna get to some good news. Um, some of the good news is the, Cal the state of California has been keeping more data on this, and we can make more determinations. The California Department of Public Health has just released some data which shows that people who reported growing up in an incarcerated household, um, that was one of their ACEs, their average likely ACE score was 4.6. Now remember, 
If you have four or more adverse childhood experiences, right, and somebody who has an incarcerated family member is likely to have at least four or more. Now likely, not everyone, but likely. Look at the stats here. I mean, they're, they're, they're stunning. Two point time, we talked about ischemic heart disease, stroke cancer, but 12.2 times as likely to attempt suicide. 10.3 times as likely to use injection drugs. 7.4 times as likely to be an alcoholic. That's the statewide data. That's the predictable outcome. And I'm going to say something right now for a number of reasons, but because the woman who raised me is in the room. Growing up as a, as a child of a single mother, I used to get mad when people said, single mom's this, or if you're raised by a single mom, something's going to happen. So I'm not here to say if you're, if you're living in a family where there's someone who's incarcerated, the outcomes are certain for you. But as policymakers, there are some predictable challenges that you all can do. Dr. Nadine Burkhara studies children in Bayview, 700 children. So we looked at the statewide data, and I just want to share local data with you. If you had zero adverse childhood experiences, 3% of that ch those children had learning or behavior problems in school. Again, Bayview-Hunters Point, you had zero adverse childhood experiences, 3% had learning or behavior problems in school. If you had four or more adverse childhood experiences, 51.3% reported learning or behavior problems in school. So the... The links are there, and here's the good news, and then I'll wrap up. And this will lead to the policy options, hopefully, that are before all of you. The good news is neuroplasticity. I know you would never think good news is neuroplasticity, but it actually is. Brain architecture is experience-dependent. I think you heard the sheriff talk about this. You heard our public defender talk about social-emotional buffering makes a big difference. Positive parenting, parenting classes, trusted mentorship, the type of work that happens with Project What, the type of investment that we make. Uh, in building community, healthy attachment, and social emotional skills are some of the factors that actually do bring healing. And um, we shared with all of you a white paper and sent it to your offices, but it's called an unhealthy dose of stress. And we encourage uh, this body to continue to look at how toxic stress affects young people and find ways that we can build resiliency factors and give every child in San Francisco a chance to grow up healthy. Thank you. Excuse me. Um, Thanks for your presentation. Thank I have you. a question. Sure. Um, the um, toxic stress you talk about, as you indicated, um, enters into the ACEs 4, and part of the trauma of uh, a child seeing um, a parent or relative get incarcerated in front of them uh, is, is a factor, and it's not... Generally, it's, it's, there's other factors that would be associated uh, with with um, that environment, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but sometimes the question I have is, where do you, where does the city or um, how do we identify quickly? how we could intervene, and um, maybe I'm answering my own question. It seems like one point of um, identification is, is it in fact when the occurrence of one getting arrested that we should have a system that automatically provides certain things to a child or children, maybe the whole family maybe, um, and I guess the question is, do, do we have such a system? Um, because, as I said, you could have these other factors going on, but nobody might know about them. 
It's, it's actually um, a really good question, um, and it goes back to the work that we do. Essentially, how do you identify kids? One of them is, is we have to use screening tools that are validated at, at various points where children interact with the system. The argument that we would make is that well child visits with a pediatrician, um, most kids have to get your immunizations. You've got to get that uh, at four, four and a half, five before you start. So as a system, I think we need to start a lot earlier in screening because oftentimes, for example, Dr. Burke in her clinical practice in Bayview will identify a three-year-old who mom is homeless, there's domestic violence in the house, and mom is challenged with substance abuse. And the amazing thing is when she does a full physical exam of that three-year-old, there's no symptoms of toxic stress yet. Um, but the, those symptoms come in developmental delays. So the idea is how can we start earlier and often, and part of what we have to do is develop screening tools, and I think every place where a child is, identify appropriate ways to screen for these risk factors, because that's really what they are, they're risk factors, and if we, if we ignore them, then the outcomes are predictable, but if we intervene, we have some great stories to tell. And, and I'm a, a true believer that the sooner, the earlier you could catch it, the better. Yeah. Um, and then, but I heard this young lady's story, and and it seems like mm, there wasn't a system mm -hmm. to really help people like her. Yeah. Uh, at, at a much earlier time. That's right. And I'll leave that to the city agencies to talk about how they could have intervened at various points or did. Thank you. Thank you so much for your time. All right. You got some spirit fingers back there. Susie, okay. Um, so, are you guys finished? No? Okay, well come on back. Um, I wanna thank our two speakers again for sharing that information with us. Our hopes for today are to hear from C departments about existing service model programs for working with children with incarcerated parents and to hear from departments regarding challenges in supporting children with incarcerated parents. Um, we'd also like to assess what kind of training, leadership, and data collection will be best in addressing this population and build the basis for a future conversation among department leaderships on uh, children with incarcerated parents. Um, so lastly, on behalf of all of us, I'd just like to say a few thank yous. Um, thank you to Supervisor Cohen for sponsoring this hearing. Thank you to Supervisors Campos, Avalos, Breed, and Kim for co-sponsoring. Um, we'd also like to thank the representatives of the city departments and community organizations for their ongoing commitment to this issue. And lastly, I'd just like to thank you, the Neighborhood Services and Safety Committee, for giving us your time. So thank you. Great. Thank you very much. So our next speaker is going to come from the Department of uh, Children, Youth, and Families. Perfect. Hello. Uh, hello, supervisors. Thank you for having me. My name is Emilio Gomes. I'm the Director of Programs and Planning for the Department of Children, Youth, and Their Families. And I'm here today to just do a brief presentation on uh, some of our efforts so far around this issue, um, as well as talk about <coughs> excuse me, um, some of our next steps and some areas for us to focus uh, moving forward. Um, so I, I want to start by just kind of focusing on and, and really kind of recognizing some of the things that other folks have already said around some of the needs um, with this population. So uh, according to our community needs assessment back in 2011, 
Um, we found that there was 16,196 San Francisco children who had a parent in custody at a county jail at some point during that year. Um, in addition, we also found that, and this has already been stated, but uh, parental incarceration obviously has quite a few adverse impacts, uh, including financial instability, instability in family relationships, and residential mobility. Um, and then finally, familial incarceration also comes with shame and stigma, and that can often lead uh, young people to associate themselves with the labels that are placed on their parents. And so I think in, in pointing these statistics out, clearly there's a high level of need. Clearly, uh, young people who are affected by this issue are at risk of you know, a range of adverse impacts. And then furthermore, and this last bullet point I think is really crucial, and it's also uh, been stated previously, and that is that there's a high chance that a young person who is a, a child of an incarcerated parent will also become incarcerated themselves. So that's clearly a challenge for us as public agencies uh, to try to address those issues. So I want to talk a little bit about some of our current investments around this issue. So I would call those uh, indirect and direct. So our direct investments are really those programs that we fund uh, that are directly working with young people who are the children of incarcerated parents. We currently fund two programs. Uh, one of them is obviously spoken already today. That's Project What? In addition, we also fund another program of community works. That's the Roots program at Balboa High School. And both of those programs are providing the types of support, types of opportunity, um, skill building um, that helps young people to address some of the issues that they're dealing with and to be, uh, to work with adults who are knowledgeable around these issues, who understand the challenges and are capable of providing the types of services and uh, things that they need. Mr. Gomez. Yes. In the interest of time. Yes. My friend, I'm sorry. You're going to have to give us the highlights. Okay, no problem. And for all the speakers that are coming up after, you have five minutes to make your presentation and just give us the, key, the highlights, the yep. main takeaway that we need people to know about. Okay. Thank you. Sure. So I'll just go right to the next steps because that's really the key thing here. Um, so for us, I think, you know, there, it was mentioned that there's a, a lack of solid data collection around this issue. Uh, we have obviously called out this population in our last community needs assessment back in 2011. We are currently in the process of doing our community needs assessment once again that will filter into our children's service allocation plan, which will then be used to, to put out our RFP. So um, that type of data will feed into our potential funding opportunities in the future. In addition, we obviously will continue funding what we're doing now, um, including the programs that we do fund. We also fund a range of violence prevention programs, and we are serving a lot of young people um, who are children of incarcerated parents in those programs as well. Um, we would like to increase some of our, our data collection and continue surveying program participants so we can get a better sense of, of kind of how they access our programs. Um, and then finally, uh, we, and I think this is really the key thing and, you know, really kind of the, the nature of this hearing, and that is that we will continue to work with our funding partners and city department, um, fellow city departments to coordinate our current services and also to work towards future services. So I think um, a key thing there, and this has been mentioned a little bit by some of the other speakers, is that there are things that can be done currently uh, to try to, um, you know, lessen some of the barriers for young people who are dealing with these issues. Um, and some of those things are a little bit outside of the range of what we do, but we do already have relationships with several departments, and we work very closely with them, meet with them regularly, and we'll continue to do that. 
Um, and then in the future, obviously, we'll continue those collaborations as well um, and try to, to uh, increase the types of services that we're doing around this area to better meet the needs of young people with these issues. Thank you. Thank you very much. Okay, everyone, we've got a rules committee meeting in this committee room at 2 o'clock, so come on, Rebecca Prozan, come on down. Today, ladies and gentlemen, Rebecca's representing the district attorney's office. <laughs> Thank you. You have three minutes. Oh, I'll make it very brief. <laughs> Thank you. Um, at the district attorney's office, we are always looking for ways to help rehabilitate um, and not sever connections between families. We are implementing holistic approaches to consider all aspects of prosecution to make the rehabilitation connecting families as effective as they possibly can. Our office actively participates in the San Francisco Children of Incarcerated Parents Partnership, where we work with other law enforcement partners to make improvements to our systems. We're proud of our colleagues at the Adult Probation Department, which you'll hear from later, who are implementing a family impact statement, because we can use that when we're making decisions around sentencing. This will help us put a thoughtful foot forward um, when we're making those decisions. As you know, we also have an alternative sentencing planner who reviews specific cases to make sure that we are using our best resources for nonviolent offenders. Um, that planner puts together a program to address the root causes of crime. Obviously, a root cause is making sure that families are connected, that people are getting the support that they need, that they are not um, um, suffering from the stress and the health issues that we've heard about earlier. And he includes family information in those reports so that we are approaching these individuals, again, with a holistic approach. And I just wanted to also say that recently our ADAs, our assistant district attorneys, were trained in the collateral consequences of felony convictions on families. Um, these are beginning steps. We look forward to working with everyone um, at this hearing to make sure that we are, again, making sure that um, families remain connected through the criminal justice system. Great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next presentation is going to be from the San Francisco Police Department, Captain Joseph McFadden. Thank you, Supervisors. Thank you, uh, I wanted to talk to you today about uh, what Sophie brought up from Project What, and that was our General Order, Department General Order 7.04, which I presented to our Police Commission and was adopted on uh, May 7th of this year. And its main goal is to minimize the disruption to the children of arrested parents, minimize trauma to the child, and determine the best alternative care for the child in a place of incarceration when a, ch a parent is uh, uh, arrested. So prior to 2006, the children weren't cared for upon the arrest of a parent either outside in public or at a home. Back when I came in the department, you basically left the child either on a street corner waiting for someone to pick them up. You had uh, children left at school. You had children left with strangers and, or with neighbors. And that's how the children were cared for at the time. You didn't really follow up on it because our deal was to do the law enforcement part of it and to arrest the parent. In 2006, the um, children of arrested parents, incarcerated parents, along with what, and the OCC approached the chief at that time about it, and we started a department bulletin regulating exactly what officers do with these arrest scenes. That was in 2007, and there was a department bulletin put out about that every two years until 2013, at which point with Chief Sir and Deputy Chief Tomioka, along with the Children of Incarcerated Parents, uh, Project What, uh, CPS, the old CPS, which is now FCS, 
OCC and POA put together this general order 7.04 and it came forward and we've now had it adopted. So what specifically it does is in trying to give the best alternative to the child, it makes sure also that the parental rights are not violated in any way. So when making an arrest, the officers at the scene, the first responders have to first inquire about the presence of children in the home and if possible make the arrest out of sight of the children. Second, if safe to do so, allow that arrested parent to speak to their children prior to going away from the scene. If it's not safe to do so because of that, then the officer is obliged to at least explain to the child the reason for the arrest and reassure the child and the parent or other parent about the safety and care of that child. Also in search warrants, we're gonna to attempt to locate children prior to the execution of this search warrant on a residence. And in conducting a preliminary background check, we notify FCS. FCS is then allowed to do a background check, so to speak, to determine if the person that we're leaving the child with is safe and doesn't have any history of uh, sexual abuse of 290 registered or uh, anything else. Uh, in any event, FCS is going to be notified and if the arrested parents are at the school, either FCS is, no FCS is notified, the school resource officer, and if they're not available, the school principal. So these are all things, that, uh, something that we're doing for the future is we're currently working on domestic violence general order and it's dealing specifically with this issue about children at domestic violence scenes and the incarceration of the parents. And that's, that's it. it. Well, real quick question for you. 30% sure. uh, of the children report having seen a weapon drawn or sirens uh, when their parents were arrested. Uh, what can, it, does SFPD have the ability to limit this level of exposure during the time of an arrest? Well, as far as like a siren or the use of a gun, it, it's going to be a... Flashing lights, you know, all that. Well, it's, 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 that's based on our A, B, or C priority runs. We what, can't What about if it's that. a non-emergency uh, If it's not an emergency, when they're not, they're not supposed to have lights and siren on, and they most likely wouldn't have their guns out unless they determined if the thing went bad. Perfect. If it Thank turned you. to some discretion. But if it's an A priority run, you're probably going to have lights and siren. And in the case of a domestic violence call, usually is an A priority run and it needs to be. Okay. Thank you. Thank you very much, Captain. All right. Um, so can, I, can I just do like oh, a yes. quick point, uh, Supervisor, on the police department? Uh, it'd be helpful. Uh, I don't need anything right now, but to, to at some point get a sort of report on where things are with uh, this is this goes beyond this topic, but it's connected to this topic. We had talked about training for police officers uh, in terms of their interaction with youth, and there was actually a joint meeting of the police commission and the youth commission relating to that, which has some relevance here. So I was wondering if you could, you know, uh, if you can ask the chief uh, to uh, give us a report on that at some point. That would be greatly appreciated. Thank you. So ladies and gentlemen, I have actually on this list uh, 12, 12 people make to make presentations and unfortunately I'm going to have to cut some of them and I'm going to let, um, uh, I'm going to have to let go the Department of Public Health, Kenneth, uh, Human Service Agencies, Noel, uh, Department of Children, 
the Department of Child Support Service, Karen, and San Francisco Unified School District, Thomas, if you're here. We're going to, I'm sorry, I'm not, we just don't have a lot of time to allow you to make a presentation. If you'd like, you can submit your, um, your slides or your talking points for the file, which is a matter of public record, so that um, should anyone listening to the hearing today could, could capture this information. I want to apologize, but also thank you for your time uh, for sitting through this. Um, I really am grateful. Um, but we do have two more speakers. First, we have have a, pre a presenter from juvenile probation, and then that'll be followed by adult probation. Hello, I'm uh, Sarah Schumann. I'm the Director of Probation Services for Juvenile Probation. I'm here on behalf of Chief Nance, who unfortunately is unable to be here. Um, I believe it was Sophie from the Juvenile Justice Commission that said there needs to be more work on data related to the subject matter. And standing here, I would have to agree, um, as I stand here, without specific data regarding youth uh, with parents who are or have been incarcerated. What is clear, however, is that a large percentage of uh, our kids come from homes where there is or has been a parent who is absent at some point uh, in their life. At the Juvenile Probation Department, we work to identify both the needs of the youth, their families, uh, so that we can address services that might assist in addressing their traumas as well as stabilizing their homes. As a matter of daily practice, our staff always inquire as to the whereabouts of parents, and we seek to establish suitable caregivers for all youth under our supervision, care, and custody. We conduct family finding efforts through our relative no notification coordinator, who works to, uh, to locate family members who may serve as possible placements or even just as a means of providing additional emotional support for youth under our care. In partnership with the Department of Public Health and Seneca Centers, we have a program within our department uh, known as AIM Hire, who provide comprehensive clinical assessments, referrals, and linkages to clinical services uh, that will assist in addressing the specific new needs of uh, our youth and families. These services uh, and programs are located within the community and are matched to address cultural competence uh, and any language needs as well. Um, as the board is probably already aware, with the extension of uh, foster care, uh, juvenile probation is now also working with youth up to the age of 21. Uh, we have brought on two social workers to work with our non-minor dependents and we continue to assist youth in their tra transition into adulthood by linking them to employment services, transitional housing when there is no permanent home, uh, to life skills, case management, as well as clinical services within the community. Um, additionally, um, JPD with our city partners and some of our community partners are currently working on the development of two new programs that we hope to implement shortly, hopefully by the end of the summer um, and for sure by the fall. Uh, that focus on family support and engagement. I think somebody mentioned early about parenting programs, and this, is, to a certain degree, is, is what these are. We're just really trying to call them more uh, family support and engagement. Uh, some of the parents don't necessarily um, are open to parenting, the, the words parenting program, right? They feel like they don't, uh, kind of has a, a somewhat of a negative connotation to it. So um, th these are some of the things that we're working on and we hope that uh, we'll assist in the stabilization of homes, prevent recidivism, and hopefully uh, prevent reentry into detention and even foster care. Um, so we, I guess in closing I'll just say we recognize the importance of assisting youth and families where incarceration has been a part of their life 
and are willing to work with others to make sure this issue is a priority and consideration in how we perform our duties as we continue our focus on helping youth remain or connect to stable and supportive homes. Thank you. I have a quick question for you. Sure. Can you describe to us uh, what's the percentage of juveniles that are on probation um, that have a parent who is incarcerated or has been formally incarcerated? You know, we don't have that data, as I mentioned earlier. Okay. That's why I mentioned that what Sophie said from the Juvenile Commission was right on okay. cast there. Thank you very much. Our next presenter will be uh, Jennifer from Adult, uh, yes, adult Probation. Hi there, my name is Jennifer Scape. I'm the director of the reentry division at the Adult Probation Department. And I just want to offer to cede half of my time to the director of Child Support Services, who I know has been here since the beginning and does important work outreaching in the jails. I just have two quick points sure. that I can make. Um, so I'm here on behalf of Chief Wendy Still, to whom this issue is uh, of primary importance, we are committed to breaking the intergenerational cycle of incarceration, so much so that we've uh, invested substantial resources in a new program. It's an alternative sentencing program in partnership with the Center on Juvenile and Criminal Justice uh, at Cameo House, which houses up to 11 women and 22 children. Um, the alternative sentencing program affords women the opportunity to serve their time out of custody um, so that they are not separated from their children. They may have up to two children each. and. Um, and avoid uh, a jail or ultimately prison commitment um, and obviously ultimately avoid uh, children entering the foster care system. Um, so APD supports the expansion of alternatives to incarceration for parenting uh, individuals and opportunities to keep families together in the community rather than being separated um, by incarceration. Um, we also recognize the need, as, as we've heard a lot about today, for mental health services and services for individuals, uh, children with learning differences, special needs, and developmental disabilities, um, regardless of their status. So regardless of their status as a CalWORKs, recipient, for example, or a foster care, one of the challenges, foster care child, one of the challenges that we experience is that individuals on probation are often disconnected from other community-based services, but find their lifeline is through the probation department, which creates kind of a disincentive to be successful on probation and terminate. Um, and so we, so we advocate for more community-based services available to children and families um, that address their, their urgent needs. Thank you. thank you. Director Roy. Just very, very thank you. Karen Roy, Director of Child Support, thank you for the, for the time. I just really wanted to um, quickly say with respect to our demographics for our caseload, um, we have approximately 53% African American, 33% Latino, um, with about 11% uh, Asian and 3% Caucasian. One of the projects that I just wanted to highlight very, very quickly is the work that we're doing in the sheriffs. Uh, with the sheriff's department, we go in. We are the first county in the state of California to go in to the county jails, male and female, and provide on-site services, the full array of child support services to parents. And the reason that this is so critical and so important for these families is um, Upon release, those parents are facing a tremendous amount of debt. 
Um, we have, since 2006, identified over 3,300 parents, and those parents are uh, responsible for a debt that exceeds $21 million, most of which is uh, due to the cost for public assistance because there is a commitment that families make when they draw down on public assistance. So it is truly, truly critical for us to get in front of this issue. Uh, California does not have retroactive modifications and um, the, the debt interest rates is one of the highest in the nation. So I just wanted to highlight that work. In addition to that, post-incarceration, we are working with employment services and we are working with the Office of Economic and Workforce Development to get our parents employed. And that's really all I wanted to say. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your work. Thank you. And your time on and this I'll issue. I'll submit the rest. Okay, to the okay. file, to the clerk. Yes, I'll submit the rest Perfect. of the file. Perfect, thank, thank you. you. Okay. Uh, Mr. Chair, that concludes the presentation. Um, we have a stack of, of um, comment cards. It is, I've been told that we're going to be breaking up the public comment into groups. I'm okay. not quite sure how that's organized. Okay, so maybe we'll just go ahead and start calling public comment. Okay, first I'd like to bring up Sid, Sidney Clemens, followed by Elizabeth Harris, follow, followed by... Um, Carrie Schneider, Schinder, and then Amira Tubby. Hello. Hello. My name is Sydney Gerwitz Clemens. For 18 and a half years, my stepfather was incarcerated in federal prisons. For more than 50 years, I have been a teacher of children and of teachers and parents, writing three books on how to support children's growth and development. I have been a commissioner in Pasadena on the Commission for Children, Youth, and Families. I was the first child to visit Alcatraz. These facts combine to make me an expert on children with parents in prison, since I have both intimate practical experience of what that means and theoretical understanding of children's development. It was on my initiative, and I'm grateful to Jeff Adachi for mentioning it, that the Bill of Rights for Children of Prisoners was adopted by this Board of Supervisors. Our community continues to need prompt, direct action from you to make the lives of the many, many children who now have a parent in prison or jail safer, more comprehensible, and more respectful. How can we have children visiting their fathers and mothers in rooms where they cannot touch each other? How can we have children who, for reasons of adult anger or poverty, do not see or touch or hear their jailed parent for the whole of their imprisonment? Can I have the time till the door closes? Okay. Closed. Great. How can we allow our draconian punishments to make it the case that the children are doing time right along with their parents, except when there is clear and present danger if parent and child meet, this relation should be honored. I propose that the Board of Supervisors create a standing committee to defend children of prisoners, to take personal responsibility, to see that San Francisco no longer punishes the whole family of someone who has been arrested. The other families, pay, members pay heavily, and my experience is at 74, forever. I have this much more. May I read it? Oh, I'm sorry. In the interest it's of time. Two paragraphs. I'm sorry. We definitely don't have time for two paragraphs, but thank you. I'll leave you. it with you. Thank you. We'll take it. We'll take it. Thank you very much, Ms. Clemens. Uh, Elizabeth Harris, you're next. 
Elizabeth, Elizabeth Harris here? Okay. All right, we'll move on. Carrie Schinder. Next is Amir, Amira Tubby. Much of, of what I had planned to say has been said, and I'm very grateful to Project What and to the Public Defender and others for, for their statistics. What I'd like to share with you very briefly is, is three sentences about my background. First of all, I work inside California state prisons as a volunteer facilitator of the Alternatives to Violence Project, which is internationally known for reducing recidivism. And one of the things that many of the men and women who have been incarcerated for decades speak of is their pain in being separated from their children, some of whose children are now in their 20s or 30s. I also work on the outside with children of incarcerated parents and as a person who's worked as a resource teacher both at the elementary school level and also in the community, at the community college level, I see the ripple effect of what happens when families are split. So that's part of my background. Because of time, there are several things that I'm asking you people to take a look at. One is, if you have not read the book, Beyond Prisons, by Laura Magnani, that you pick that up. That is a very clear and wonderfully written piece about what happens in the disparity, the racial disparity in this country and why. The second thing I'd like to ask you to do is to please not vote for more prisons, more jail expenditures. We need more programs like Project What? We do not need more prison beds. The third thing that I'd like to ask you to do is to consider the disparity in sentencing at our state level between crack cocaine and powder cocaine and what that is in class differences as individual voters. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm going to call up uh, the entire Project What team. Please come up. And Stan, I understand there's going to be one speaker speaking on your behalf. Just come on up to the front. I'm just going to call into the record the names of the Project What uh, people that are standing in support of the speaker. We've got Amira, we've got Daniel Yan, we have Mariah Humphrey, Layla, Jana, and Alex, uh, Desiree Soto, Jessica Calderon. All right, you may begin. Hi, my name is Daniel Yan, and please allow me to speak for stand on behalf of uh, the entire Project What. Stand behind him. I'm 19 years old, and I've been part of the project was since the summer of 2013. I just graduated from Mission High School and will attend the Wharton School of University of Pennsylvania in the fall. My dad is living under the political asylum in the United States. He was arrested in China for corruption charge. Due to his special identity, later he was deported to the United States for having aggressive political attitude in 20, 2010. I, joined, I came here and joined him in 2013. There's no doubt that I love the United States as both a nation and a soccer team. <laughs> uh, because it is the United States that, uh, who accepted me, my father, when his own country didn't welcome him anymore. 
But the prison system here, like solitary confinement, uh, sometimes makes me doubt the reason why I chose chose uh, ch chose here over staying in China for a less liberated yet uh, less chaotic life. Uh, what I want you to know about children with incarcerated parents is that we are a group of children who seem to be real, but actually we're around you every day. You were born with a pair of dear parents, and so were we. Your childhood was filled with joyful memories about the time you have spent with your dear parents, but ours weren't. You love parents. Uh, you love your parents and want them to be around you all the time, and so do we. Uh, you feel like you can't live without either one of your parents, but we have to. Uh, so please look into your heart. Uh, stand, stand up and try your best to support children with incarcerated parents. We deserve your help because we've been through something we don't deserve because we're also the future of the United States of America. Thank you. Thank you very much. All right, let's see. We have another group of uh, folks that we're going to call together. Community Works, one family. What? It was speaking as a group. So I understand Community Works are going to come together. Do you have one speaker presented? All right. I'd like to just for the record call in or name the folks who are going to be standing Ruth Morgan, Sarah Carson. Nadia Sharif, Eric Rice, William Ray, and Menanjay Fata. Menanjay Fata. All right. My name is Sarah Carson, and I run the One Family Program in the San Francisco jails. The One Family Program provides parenting classes um, and supervises all of the visits between parents and children in the jails in San Bruno and at CJ2. We also provide support services to parents who have open Child Protective Services cases, CPS cases. Um, behind me is, is my staff who teaches the classes, offers the support, and we also provide therapy for, for families. One of the things that we provide is an opportunity for parents to sit down and think with us about how they're going to share their sentences with their children. We have three or four people right now who are getting ready to have a conversation with their child about getting a life sentence. We offer support services that includes psychotherapy for those families. I have a waiting list that's easily eight months long for, for them to have a therapist to sit with them. All of our our classes have waiting lists. I would like to be able to double my staff and be able to have much more visiting happening between children and their parents. These are contact visits and they're supervised and supported by social workers. I also want to take some time for Mani to talk about some um, out in the community work she does. Good afternoon, I'm Meni Shifata, and one of the programs that I oversee with Community Works is ROOTS. Um, as Almijo from DCYF had mentioned, it's the first school-based program for youth that have been impacted by having a parent incarcerated in San Francisco. Um, and I just wanted to um, share some short reflections from students um, this year in the ROOTS class at Balboa High School who put on an extraordinary play about the impact of incarceration on themselves and their community. Um, this particular student had his father uh, was incarcerated. Um, I was put in this class uh, by my counselor because she thought I needed it. I felt it was going to be boring and pointless, but I was wrong. It was hard to discuss my feelings, but I overcame it, and I'm not scared of my feelings anymore. I discovered that I had been affected by incarceration and that I need to express my pain to take it away. I also learned the criminal justice system is messed up, and it impacts every person, not only the person who is incarcerated. My experience in the play was amazing. 
It was cool how we came up with the ideas for the play. I gained a lot with the people who came and helped us. I learned how to write better and that it is okay to speak up. It was fun also rehearsing because it made me get better as an actor. When we finished the play, I felt I really accomplished something. Thank you thank very you for much. Thank you for sharing that personal story and thank you for your hard work. I've, I have. I just want to say I'm Ruth Morgan. Okay. I'm the executive director of Community Works, um, and I just wanted to emphasize that we really want all the departments as, as much as they can to collect the data on the numbers of children um, that are incarcerated. That would really help. We know how difficult it is, and also I think that um, the one thing that we don't have uh, we don't have enough is this contact visits in the jail, and I think there's just not that much more money that we need to really get dedicated. Um, to dedicate overtime for the Sheriff's Department's deputies to support contact visits. So I really urge um, you to support that small amount of money that will make a big difference. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. Okay, the last four comment cards I have. Uh, uh, Elizabeth Harris, are you back? Okay. I see, uh, is it? Tenen? Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Um, Brian, and then, I don't know what this is. Something Martin? Ralph? Raymond? Good afternoon. Thank you, supervisors, for holding this important hearing. First, I just want to say it's unfortunate that, um, you know, the first, the, the first three hearings, um, to the first three items today were given so much time, then this one had to be cut short. Um, but thank you for holding this hearing. My name is Tynan Krigoff, and I'm with Californians United for Responsible Budget, a statewide coalition of over 65 organizations working to curb prison spending by reducing the number of people in prisons and jails and the number of prisons and jails in California. As we have the discussion of the needs of youth with current or formerly incarcerated parents, and also the possibility of a replacement jail at 850 Bryant Street. We need to keep a few things in mind. Often when parents of children are imprisoned, they lose their rights to custody. And research shows that all, all imprisonment interrupts, damages, and often severs family bonds. Any incarceration is bad for families. Incarcerated people often lose their homes, jobs, and connections with their family and friends. And we need to invest in community-based alternatives that are not controlled by law enforcement. And we need to build strong communities, not jails. Thank you. Thank you very much. Richard Martin? Brian? Mencia? Okay, seeing none. Are there any other members of the public that would like to speak at this time? All right, come up. I know you guys are in a rush. I just I just, it's more of a statement. I just want us to remember that um, when we speak about victims of crime, that these children and the families of the people that commit crime are also victims. And I would love to see, and I don't have the numbers, to see how much money California gives to victims' rights. And I would love to see if, if it's not happening, some of that money, not just DCYF supporting such programs, but the state of California actually supporting such programs so they can also save money, so we can save these kids. Thank you, JP. Thank you. Your name, your name for the record. Joe Calderon. Thanks. I'm back. So, name? Hmm? She made a presentation. My name is Azizi Lloyd. I'm 17 from Project What, and I just wanted to basically add 
um, as I shared my story with you guys earlier, I just wanted to say that basically, if you guys could find a way to make resources more available, like earlier, like try and catch it early, like what Norman Yee was saying. The earlier you can catch it, the better. And it's a shame that the other hearings took so long. Bye. All right, thank you very much. All right, I just, um, Mr. Chair, I'd like to close out public comment and just uh, close with um, just a, some remarks about how grateful I am for the folks that are working on the city side, on, uh, on the nonprofit and organization side, specifically want to call out our many very talented and quite frankly the future of San Francisco, our youth commissioners, and then also our, also our youth advocates that are working with Project What. To the adults that are providing the leadership, the guidance, the love, the mentorship, thank you. This work is incredibly important. It literally is a matter of life and death. And colleagues, I hope that I can count on your support um, and joining me as we continue to move and push this agenda forward, uh, requiring that our city agencies do a better job of keeping information and the data uh, needed so that we can not only create policies to have a positive effect on the young people's lives of San Francisco, but also so that we are change makers. And as you know, the old adage, as San Francisco goes, so does California, so goes the rest of the country. And hopefully we can start a movement right here in our city. Thank you. Briefly, thanks Supervisor Cohen for her leadership and everyone who's presented, but most importantly to the young uh, men and women who have come out to speak on this uh, very powerful. And I do apologize uh, that uh, the, the presentation had to be cut short. Uh, we clearly need a lot more work that needs to be done. And one of the things that I uh, want to say here is that it is why we need to be very careful as we make future investments like this uh, idea of investing in an extended or a new jail, uh, I think that uh, that money could be used in other ways, and I think that's yet another reason why uh, we need to rethink that strategy. But uh, with that, Supervisor Cohen, do you want to uh, continue this item or file it? I'd like to file it to the call of the chair. Okay, so we're okay. So we're going to continue it to the call of the chair. Thank you. Okay, so if we can have a motion to continue. Continue without objection. Again, thank you very much. Uh, Mr. Clerk, do we have any other business before the committee? No more business, Mr. Chair. Thank you. The meeting is adjourned, and we have a, a meeting of the Rules Committee that will be followed by this, and I know that we're taking a break before that happens. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.